Hola, this is your captain speaking. Hermanos, my name is Brace, and we are going down past the Florida Keys to Cuba, where we're going to land our little uh, landing party there. Keyword party. And we are going to kidnap a couple of people, kill a couple of Soviet soldiers, and wazam, get arrested and then executed. Sound good? Let's do it. You didn't think I was going to say that, did you? I didn't you? think you were going to say that, no. <laughs> gotcha. The cold opens have declined precipitously after nine hours of recording about JFK because I no longer find humor in anything. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome. Hi. Truanon. My Hello. name is Liz. My name is Brace. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky. <sighs> like I said, this is Truanon. This is Truanon JFK part three? Trace. That's what, how they would say it in Cuba. Of question mark, question mark, question mark. Oh, yeah. Lots of question marks there. Um, um, what are we talking about this episode? I don't fucking remember. We recorded it five hours ago. <laughs> I don't know what we talked about. I can't tell you. What did we talk about? Wait, no, this is going to bother me. What did we talk about? We talked about Lee Harvey Oswald for two hours. Oh, yeah. That's- <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. We talked about Lee Harvey Oswald for two hours. Oh, my man Lee. I know. Again, the greatest Marxist Leninist in American history. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, make that joke? We, did, in fact, did make that joke. But again, that was like 15 hours ago. So how can anyone blame us? No one's going to remember. You know what? We made that joke when I made that joke just now. Exactly. Um, A female comedian alert. Let us hit the button. I'm not going to try to do a, a, a little quirky, fun introduction here. I was had this whole thing where I was going to say we're in Minsk at a factory and we're welcoming in our new employees, but then mm. I couldn't pronounce Minsk, uh, and so it sort of fell through. So I will just welcome them here in a more normal and dignified manner. We have with us here today independent researcher Ben and, of course, Aaron Good, who has earned his PhD writing about U.S. hegemony, elite criminality, and the deep state. His dissertation is going to be published soon by Skyhorse Books. And uh, inshallah, the uh, link will be in the uh, in the description for this episode. But if it's not, we'll put a link to something else and then update it later. Uh, fellas, welcome to Minsk. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> it's great to be here. It's it's colder than I thought. Yeah, yeah, a lot less fun too. In fact, I, I'm I'm we're returning home shortly. Um, we are we are sort of gathered here to talk about um, one of the pivotal but often overlooked figures in the assassination of uh, JFK, which would be a uh, obscure character in history known as Lee Harvey Oswald. What an icon, huh? Yeah, truly an American icon. Um, 
And I think I think there's a lot of public con- conceptions and misconceptions about Lee Harvey Oswald. I know there are a lot of sort of dueling theories about him, although many of them sort of do line up that he was an intelligence agent in some capacity. And uh, and we figured if we're going to talk about the JFK assassination and we're going to talk about one of the so-called perpetrators, or at least somebody who was involved in it in some way, uh, whether that be as just a patsy or a, you know, a gunman or whatever, uh, we would really have to kind of take a, an examination of Lee Harvey Oswald's life. And I think there's sort of just, I mean, from my own um, memory of just how I've seen him portrayed in sort of popular media, he's sort of been this like simple, almost like hayseed type guy, weirdly like a combination of both like a hick and like a dumb like New York guy uh, who just had this like, you know, incredible grudge against the U.S. government, was a maybe low IQ type communist, which, you know, true of many uh, communists, but uh, with Lee Harvey Oswald, things are a little different. Um, you know, he did go to the Soviet Union, came back, and uh, and was just apparently so fed up that he assassinated a U.S. president. That's it. Case closed. But uh, if we take an examination of his life, things are not so differently. So I think uh, I think we should really start kind of with his origins, like Lee Harvey Oswald. Where is he from? What kind of milieu is he from? Well, he um, he he started off in life not doing exceptionally well. His mother um, was a, a troubled woman, and um, he got into all sorts of trouble as a kid for like truancy and other things. And uh, he 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 joins the Marines. Um, eventually, even before he joined the Marines, he'd likely met David Ferry, who figures in the story. I think he was about in 10th grade or something like that when he likely met him as part of the civilian air patrol, which is some weird kind of paramilitary mm. uh, outfit, um, like a junior military academy kind of thing uh, in around New Orleans. And um, then he, so he, he joins the Marines and he is eventually stationed in Japan or at a, at a base that's like a joint CIA, you know, uh, naval base or whatever uh, at Sugi. And he is a radar operator. He gets some sort of uh, security clearance, and he's dealing with U two flights. So he has to um, he has to have some sort of connection with CIA because the CIA was the uh, entity that ran all of those. I mean, um, Alan Dulles bragged that his U two spy plane could see every blade of grass in the Soviet Union uh, because the you know this new technology that they had. Well, we should we should we should explain what the the U two is. I think it's a it was a spy plane developed in the fifties, and it had a very fancy, expensive camera on it that could be, and it could fly at a really high altitude. And they would do these overflights over the Soviet Union, very high, to take pictures of like uh, missile installations and other things. Um, and this would allow them to get some sort of uh, accurate picture of actual Soviet capabilities which they would often exaggerate and, you know, lie about anyway to get bigger budgets or for whatever purpose they had. That's why Kennedy thought there was a big missile gap in the Soviet favor when he was running against Nixon. And then when he gets elected, he finds out that it's an enormously lopsided gap with the U.S. having a huge advantage over uh, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And famously, I think before Kennedy is, is elected, the most uh, infamous in- incident involving the U-2 was the um, – Gary Powers crash or shoot down. I think we talked about that in one of the other mm-hmm. episodes that, and this really sabotages yeah, yeah. his 
uh, sort of peace talks with the Soviet Union. Like uh, him, Eisenhower, you know, said that this way of life was bad for us to be worried about this nuclear issue all the time and that, you know, humanity shouldn't be like hanging from a cross of iron or something to that effect as a sort of metaphor to describe this uh, nuclear, this nuclear terror that everybody lived under. And then Dulles would come out and say something really belligerent. And, uh, you know, so Eisenhower, you know, he didn't do much to really curtail the American deep state at all, uh, as represented by the Dulles brothers and so on. But he did at the end want to try to have some sort of peace deal with the Soviets or to de-escalate tensions. And then in the middle of that, the U-2 plane crashes, even though he had ordered there to be no U-2 flights. And at the time, of course, you, let's assume you're, your uh, listeners already know this, that Oswald had uh, defected from the, uh, he, he got out of the Marines um, and he defected to the Soviet Union. And uh, Gary Powers in his book, uh, a memoir, he sort of blames Oswald for the U2 being shot down, that he would have given away those secrets. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. one of the things Oswald did was when he defected, he announced very loudly that he was going to um, reveal U2 secrets to the Soviets. He said, I'm an American citizen. I have U2 secrets. Why don't you let me come into your country? Uh, you know, I'm a former Marine and so on. So Gary Powers uh, sort of believed that. And then he would kind of walk it back and be sort of vague about what he thought actually happened there with that. So you mentioned um, Atsugi, and I want to pause there for a second, because one thing that I kind of want to drive home as we're sort of making this case about Oswald being uh, CIA, which I think is a case we can make, <laughs> um, and CIA for quite a good time, uh, is that, first of all, so the U-2 program, you know, for decades, the U.S. military maintained that that was not at all being run by the CIA. Um, they only like recently as like a decade ago, I think, or two decades ago admitted that the CIA was basically running the entire U2 program and not the U S military via Lockheed Martin. Um, and that's important to know because that Suki, like, like we mentioned, like was a big, there was a huge CIA presence at that base. Um, Within the U2 program, but also, I mean, there's, you know, evidence that they're running a lot of MK Ultra programs out of that base. It was like the kind of, you know, I mean, this is in Japan in the late 50s. This is like a very important part of the world for the U.S. to, you know, have a, a big footprint um, in. And so, like, you know, as we go through this episode and we're kind of laying out, you know, this biography of Oswald that is like, you know, Brace said uh, in, I think in stark contradiction to what is like the popular narrative about Oswald. I just want to like kind of highlight these little moments of his biography that are like, Oh, nope. Okay. So this is when he was with also the CIA. Like he was at Atsugi. He was, was he a radar operator or, I mean, he was, you know, pretty like key, like, you know, very involved in the U2 operations. Yeah, and one one other thing about the the U two program is we mentioned uh, Aaron mentioned David Ferry, um, mm. who we'll probably get into more detail about, but um, you know seems to me at least to have been uh, Oswald's recruiter when they were both involved in mm-hmm. the Civil Air Patrol in New Orleans uh, very early on. There's that famous photo of the two of them, uh, you know, getting get some chow at the at the Civil Air Patrol, right? Uh, and it mostly seemed you know that program seemed kind of like a Boy Scouts uh, yeah. kind of a thing with with kind of that military edge. And I and I I use the word Boy Scouts very advisedly also, uh, but um, uh, 
the uh, the there's a lot of speculation that that Ferry was a, a U two pilot, and Jim DiEugenio talks about it in his book. Uh, and uh, the fact that Ferry uh, had alopecia, and uh, if you've seen photos of Ferry, you know he has yes. his, his eyebrows, you know, painted on. And um, because one of the one of the side effects that was noted from this high altitude, because what, the feature of the U two that made it able to avoid Soviet radars uh, and and interceptors for so long was its high altitude flight. And so one of the side effects of this high altitude flight was alopecia. Um, so there's speculation that Ferry may have been at Atsugi uh, flying mm. U-2s. Um, it's unclear if, you know, if he was there when, when Oswald was there. Um, but it does point to this, this um, Oswald has a lot of handlers throughout his life. Uh, and, it, and this is sort of something that points to potentially Ferry having handled him in these, in these early days. Uh, so just, just a fun aside. Yeah, I mean, one other thing about that Oswald's sort of early life is that he sort of loudly um, proclaims at one point, I think when you know, he was in his late teens, that he is a Marxist, that he is a communist. And not only is he a Marxist and a communist, he's actually learning Russian. So, of course, he joins the Marines. And Naturally. <laughs> which is, I mean, of so course. So many committed Marxists. Um, but he... Uh, but, it's you know there there's sort of different testimony from from different friends that he has during this during during his life and some of them are like I have no idea what you're talking about like he never once mentioned uh, any foreign countries or communism or anything like that to me and then there's other people who say like even people you know in his in in his Marines unit are like yeah this guy would like very loudly proclaim this kind of stuff and and you know one of the reasons for this sort of discrepancy. Um, is a lot of the times when when people are, you know, put into these sort of positions like a cover, you know, have a cover story, or they just they just call them stories uh, in in the CIA or whatever other intelligence um, agency they're in. I mean, and this isn't just a CIA thing. This is all intelligence agencies throughout the world on any side of whatever. Um, is, is they get a story, you know, they basically get a cover, and and one way to do that, and we see that a lot with Oswald, or we, we can sort of presume that from a lot of really. Um, We'll get to some of like the New Orleans stuff later, but like, you know, there's a lot of instances in Oswald's life where, where he seems to be doing things that like don't quite make sense to the outside eye and like, you know, to, to any sort of biographer of him. But if you're in the moment, they would do like a pretty good job of establishing like some sort of bona fides for the guy, mm. you know, like, um, you know, oh, well, of course, I mean, this guy's definitely a communist. He talked about it all the time, you know, in our Marine barracks. Um, you know, there's all sorts of other stories of him at Tsugi, like being seen with a white Russian woman, which also probably just a prostitute, which there are quite a lot of those in, in around U S military bases, yeah. uh, in the Pacific. Um, uh, you know, it, it, but, but, uh, but I think that's sort of an early indication. And, and Ben, I think you're absolutely right with the fairy connection there. Um, that, uh, that, that, that could totally have been something that, that he was basically told to do from an early age and it worked, you know, it, it worked pretty well because he was certainly known by a lot of people as a communist. Yeah. The, the, his placement at the, at the, um, at the Atsugi base has another role too, which is we, so we mentioned the fact that Gary Powers got shot down and that, uh, Eisenhower had ordered those flights to cease. And one of the reasons they had ordered those flights to cease is they, is they thought correctly that the Soviets were now able to hit these U-2s. So having Oswald uh, learn about the U-2 program as this radar operator, he's now learning information about a program that's no longer useful to the CIA, right? Uh, intelligence right. Uh, satellites are coming online at this point in time, or, or they're starting to come online. The U-2 program has been 
basically made useless by advancements in Soviet um, anti-air defenses and interceptors. And so, um, you know, Oswald gets to learn about this uh, formerly very useful piece of American military hardware and can take that information with him when he defects to the Soviet Union. Uh, but of course, in reality, that the information is not very useful anymore. Um, and so it's not a big loss for the CIA to, you know, lose this this radar operator to the Soviets. Yeah. And, and um, as, as Brace said, the, a lot of the earlier, th- the things in his life seem not to make sense. Even his earlier statements of interest in socialism or Marxism seem strange, even before the Marines. Um, like he, he was attempting to learn more about socialism as a teen and such. And uh, reportedly his favorite TV show was um, I Led Three Lives, which was about a, um, an FBI informant in the Communist Party, right? And then that was his story. And so he, or that was his favorite show, and it was made into like a TV miniseries or a TV series. And so, you know, it, it makes you wonder if that led, you know, if that interest in, uh, you know, taking on another identity or something like that would have had, would have, you know, encouraged him to do the kind of things that he apparently did in New Orleans and so on leading up to, uh, you know, uh, November 22nd, 1963. Um, and other issues with him in the military that are uh, noteworthy. I mean, he's at this Marine base in California and he meets Carrie Thornley, who uh, I'm, mm. I think we could go into more depth yeah. in, at some point in the, in the future, uh, not today perhaps, but um, and Thornley writes a, a novel with Lee Harvey Oswald as the main character. It's called like the um, the warrior, the Idol Warriors, and uh, it's 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 very strange <laughs> that you would of all the people you would write a, a story on. And Thornley later would also be a radar operator, um, and he would also go to Atsugi, and then he would end up in new orleans at the same time that oswald was there uh working with you know guy bannister mm-hmm. and such he's in the adam curtis thing and i'm going to uh write more about that in the future and uh i probably have that information more committed to memory at that at that point because it's but it's very it's it's very bizarre he starts speaking russian in the military which is uh, in the marines you know while he's still there it's speculated that he was mm-hmm. taught at um Monterey College, uh, like a Monterey Language Institute or something like that, that the military that the military runs. Yeah, that's like that's where they send everybody. Yeah, that's actually that's actually where I learned. <laughs> uh, so he's it's not uh, like the 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 Marines are not a uh, bastion of like freewheeling uh, open mindedness and such in the 1950s. I mean, I don't think they really are now, but in the 1950s you start playing Russian records and talking about how great Karl Marx is. That's, that's not the way to, uh, you know, do well in the Marines. And like, you'd have to be, it's very, it's just very strange. You start speaking and he supposedly learns Russian from uh, listening to records. Right. But I don't, that's not really plausible. That makes absolutely no sense. I also think that it's behavior that would not be tolerated unless someone told someone, Hey, don't worry about it. Like, right. if someone in the Marines, especially at such a, like, you know, I mean, he also had, like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had pretty high-level clearance as well. Like, he was not, like, I think it was, like, above top secret from what I recall. But, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, he's not just, like, some guy just, like, you know, walking around about just, like, saying nonsense. Like, I mean, if he's, like, saying out loud that actually the communists are right at a fucking military base, like... <laughs> 
you know, someone's going to be like, hey, we should get this guy out of here. And you know what I mean? Like, it's not behavior that would be tolerated in the fucking U.S. military. It just would not. In the middle of the Cold War, it just wouldn't be. You go to the psych ward, I would think. I mean. Yeah, or you just get fucking kicked out. They'd be like, what the hell are you doing here? Get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Dishonorably discharged. I mean, they did slam on KP duty for a while, but that's because he, he, I guess he got caught with a pistol that he wasn't supposed to have. Um, and then I think he beat up his superior officer at one point, which, all right, mm. well, that's, that's, that's one, that's one mark in his favor. Um, <laughs> but you know, he, he eventually, he, he takes off from the Marines and, uh, then he, he makes his famous trip. And I, I want people to understand Lee Harvey Oswald was like a young dude during all of this. Like most of what we've talked about up until this point is he's like a teenager, yeah. You know, like Dude, a very he shot, young he guy. He was killed at 20, 24 years old. Yeah. He was a kid. Exactly. Oops, sorry. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, Liz is a no Oswald. Like, she doesn't, she thinks the Jack Ruby thing is fair. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just a, they shot that at a sound studio. Kubrick shot that, actually. Yeah, whole thing. whole thing's <laughs> fake. Um, but, uh, but, but, yeah, he eventually, he leaves the Marines, and then he uh, he makes a rather weird trip to Finland and then to the mm. Soviet Union. And I know there are some um, questions about maybe the sources of his funding uh, in getting to Finland, right? Yeah, he doesn't seem to have had any way to be able to pay for it. And the f- he also got a, a discharge from the Marines on very dubious grounds, like a mm. strange injury to his mother that she had already recovered oh, yeah. from earlier. And, and just the kind of thing that you would not be able to get under normal circumstances. Uh, that that sort of a of a release, and so additionally, his travels. Not only does he not seem to have been able to have the money in his bank account to be able to have paid for them, but he's there aren't there aren't. Uh, I believe it's the from Britain to uh, Finland. There, it seems like he may have gone on a military transport. That there wasn't really a commercial flight that he could have gone on anyway, and so it it, it seems to be that. What it really looks like, according to people like um, John Newman and uh, other people that have looked into this, and I mean, most of the people who are in the critical community uh, believe that he was part of some false defector program, that he was sent over as a dangle to try to gather, for whatever intelligence purposes uh, he he was used for. And um, there was even a State Department employee who tried to look into this, who was in charge of giving people security clearances. And it seemed that his attempts to investigate this, as was his job, you know, because of, uh, you know, his responsibility for maintaining security in the U.S. and in the government, that this led to a series of events and really caused his downfall. Um, and he was fired just before he eventually gets kicked out right before, um, right, right before the assassination, um, the mm-hmm. Otto Atepka story, which I could go into more uh, detail about, but it's really one of the more uh, interesting stories about that. I mean, I feel like the false defector program is super important because it's, yeah. I, I think it explains w- how it is that, that he ended up in the Soviet Union and for what purposes he was there. Because it does seem clear that uh, the CIA was operating this false defector program and the documents that Otepko was uh, trying to get access to, I think pretty clearly led to him being fired despite being having otherwise a pretty stellar record in doing what counterintelligence guys do. I do want I do want to make it clear though like uh, for for those maybe who are super new to this stuff like uh, you know obviously during the Cold War there were a lot of defectors well 
a good amount of defectors sort of on both sides, right? They the, uh, tend to be the more sort of high-level ones tended to come from the Eastern Bloc over to the West, although famously like the Cambridge Five, although not all of them actually made it to the Soviet Union. Um, some of the, you know, Kim Philby, who we mentioned in the last episode, being the sort of the most prominent, although there were other people who were like moles and stuff like that. This is actually somebody who is defecting. Um, the, the KGB were actually really skilled at running false defectors uh, into the West. I mean, they actually gaslit uh, uh, Mr. Angleton into, uh, into going insane with probably a, 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 a false defector named Orlov and probably a series of other ones. Um, but it was a pretty common tactic at the time because defectors were sort of seen as these gold mines um, and these, these really... Um, you know, these sort of endless fonts of information and obviously not as good as having someone in place all the time. But once you actually get someone over to your side, you can obviously, um, you know, sort of pump them from information a little more safely. And so this would have been a program that absolutely everybody was running in, in, in during the Cold War. Yeah. And on the flip side, too, like even if it wasn't for actual intelligence gathering, like defectors as like kind of cultural objects became very important in mm -hmm. terms of like selling ideological I don't, garbage <laughs> to, to people. And a lot, many of those books are still taught in American universities, by the way, of what the Soviet union was actually like. And it's all fake news people. It's, this still goes on today. It's, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 especially Xinjiang and, and such, you'll hear these people who mm. say things about Xinjiang, which are the factors who are just exactly, you know, the message is exactly what the CIA would like to be put out there. Yeah. And I mean, or, or North so, Korea. Yeah, sure. Korean one is yeah, pretty yeah, common. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, that's yeah. the North Korean ones are actually generally pretty funny because they're yeah, just they like they're not even they're not just being run by the cia there's like north korean de defectors being run by like south korean tabloids and yeah. so they'll just come out with like the most sort of insane stories but then the american press will re report that as appearing in the south korean press even though it's appearing in their version of you know yeah. not even the daily mail like the you know the national Enquirer, national Enquirer like the or sun or like whatever that, yeah yeah, yeah that funny. was how the original mockingbird thing worked was it it wasn't so much about what they did with domestic journalists and the CIA. Um, it never really, it hasn't really ever fully come out, but the Mockingbird program that Frank Wisner ran uh, was mm -hmm. the use of foreign agents to report things that would then get picked up by American, the American press. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this is, this just goes on and the defectors can add to that and they can just put out any sort of information that they want. And as a result, we never really know what to believe. But if you reflexively don't mm -hmm. believe news items that conform with what you can think the CIA would want you to think, you're probably going uh, <laughs> a long way towards figuring out what's going on. Um, I, yeah, which I is like, you know, the, all of this is to say that, like, it's, I, I don't think that, like, Oswald being sent through a like fake defector program seems like a very plausible, easy to understand. Like even for anyone just like first, like we said, first getting, in, getting into all this stuff, like into the, um, you know, all the details about the assassination, like this is not something that's very difficult to wrap your head around. Like this seems like a very obvious program that intelligence would be running. Mm -hmm. That would be very vast that would be, it's almost like, you know, yeah, you're just like throwing things at a wall and seeing what sticks. You throw a bunch of agents into the Soviet Union and see what you get. Now, in the case of Oswald, it seems like the Soviets were like, ah, we don't know if we believe you. So we're going to send you to this toy factory <laughs> in Minsk. Yeah. And um, the 
there, so somebody, the people in the U.S. who are in charge of like trying to monitor security issues, like Ottawa Tepka and the State Department, they tried. They understood that there was this kind of a program. So when Oswald defects in 1959, um, you know, there's a CIA file opened on him in response to this. That would be routine for anybody. Um, and then somebody in the State Department sends a letter to Richard Bissell, you know, the guy who would mm. soon be fired by Kennedy, asking for more info on defectors. Mm -hmm. And there were a bit, there was a list of like 18 people. And uh, eventually, uh, uh, Otto Atepka gets interviewed by uh, Jim Hogan, uh, the guy that wrote a lot of great stuff about Watergate. And um, he, uh, Otepka was the guy that uh, initiated a study on the defectors because the CIA and the military intelligence would not tell the State Department who were the double agents in the, in, that were working for the U.S. but had defected to the Soviet Union. And so um, they actually came back with a list of like five people that you shouldn't bother looking into by the Office of Security because the State Department had already supposedly looked into them. But, and Oswald was on that list, but Otepka said that, no, this isn't true. We don't really know about this guy. And uh, eventually they open another 201 file in 1960 in response to uh, Otepka's inquiry. And this one is called Lee Henry Oswald. So they intentionally put a bogus mm. name in there under him. And to make the Oswald thing even more confusing about the way that the CIA handled his defection and trying to figure out what was going on with him is that it seems that these, these other files, these duplicate files with the fake name or the, their deliberately misspelled name, presumably, that they were used as a mole hunt to, to have a mole hunt to hopefully see like when this name that was erroneous would, would surface somewhere else. That might indicate that somebody had accessed this file and somehow let you figure out mm. who a mole was, even though they weren't very good at actually finding the real moles. I think they were actually had a zero had a zero success basically in finding they like never found moles essentially not until way after the fact right um, it, it seems yeah yeah so um, what what happens with a Tepco though is he gets taken off of sensitive cases once he looks into the Oswald case and uh, he it, it it's hard for him to figure out what's going on he had. Uh, been dealing with these people who were trying to get security clearances for people that may not have deserved it like or, or warranted it because of different issues like uh, Rostow. But Otepka gets demoted at one point. Um, he, they try to trick him into accepting a post at the War College that would have meant he'd had to leave the State Department. Uh, they have spies in his office. He has his phone bugged. He actually catches an NSA um, spook in his office late at night when he wasn't normally there and he walks in and there's an NSA guy there. His burn bag of like stuff he's supposed to like have destroyed gets examined every night. His house is surveilled. And this one is pretty scary. He has a safe and he comes in and finds that it's been drilled into and then plugged. So presumably you drill into his, I don't do this myself, but you drill into a safe and then you can put a mirror down there and you can look at the tumblers and you can see what the combination is. And then they just plug it back up helpfully. And the only thing that was in that safe was uh, the study that he was trying to work on uh, that included that included Oswald. Um, and so, you know, this whole th this whole event eventually leads to him being um, he he's he's fired days before the Kennedy assassination or a couple of weeks before the Kennedy assassination. And um, he's uh, he tells a journalist later in life that uh, Sarah McClendon he tells her. That he knows who killed JFK, but he can't say anymore. And then that was that. 
uh, for him. So this this Oswald thing is very sensitive. It kind of destroys this guy's career, who'd been an upstanding guy with like a flawless record until then. He was just trying to do his job. But the other parts of the government are kept in the dark of these things, even if they're nominally charged with security issues, like uh, you know these counterintelligence mm. people and office of security people are. Uh, they they seem to have like the ultimate in, in terms of like being able to assert some kind of like national security privilege to uh, disrupt the way the government is supposed to function. Well, the thing with Oswald in Russia too is that is that when he gets there, he he goes into the U.S. ambassador's office. I think it's the actual ambassador himself, and he declares his intention to defect, and says in this sort of simpleton's way that he is going to give them every secret that he was privy to uh, when he was in the Marines, uh, and the ambassador sort of was like. Well, okay, man. You know, if it feels good, do it, brother. Like, you know, the sixties are coming. Follow Things are about bliss. to be groovy. Follow, yeah, follow your heart. You know, <laughs> eat, pray, love, go travel, explore, find yourself, get out of here. And uh, and little semester over overseas. <laughs> and there, you know, there's there's sort of ample evidence. I mean, there's 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 stuff from the Soviet archives, um, and and stuff from, of course, like American spying on the Soviets, all that sort of thing that, that sort of detail his next little time in, in the Soviet Union. And there's apparently a suicide attempt. Um, you know, he gets very, uh, which very early on in his stay there, I guess the he really just could, you know, Eastern Europe is I He's guess, actually, a lot, he, a lot that's when handle. he finds left communism and says yes. that he can't handle yes. what's happening to the Soviet Union. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it is a sign of mental illness. So yeah. Um, so he, uh, yeah, he, he, you know, he kind of goes berserk and he's going to the KGBs like, you know, hire me. I need to talk to you guys. And they just are totally uninterested. I mean, they're probably interested to some degree, but they are not biting. I mean, these are guys who are like, listen, brother, like, you know, whatever you got, don't get it on me. <laughs> and uh, and they send him down to, to Minsk uh, to work at, like Liz said, a, a toy factory, I believe, and, and live in the workers' dorms there. Yeah, and, and when you look at what he does when he comes back, I mean, he marries a Russian wife who's like the daughter of a KGB colonel who mm-hmm. you know, is quite likely supposed to do some sort of intelligence thing that a that could, but she gets she gets swept up in events that like make her not useful yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, right, it does seem like presumably she was meant to monitor him as, in some respect. I mean, yeah, it, it does seem like she was picked out to serve that purpose. I yeah. mean, he seems like such a shitty husband that I cannot imagine any woman sticking with him unless she was literally assigned to do so by her father, who was in the KGB. <laughs> I mean, what would have been attractive about him? Like he worked at a, you know, he worked at this toy factory. He was like clearly not doing well. Yeah. Like his, his Russian was, she was, was like, I can fix him. <laughs> <laughs> I could fix him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it just seems to me like, but, but as you say, Aaron, like she just got, you know, she got completely steamrolled by events that were far out of her control. Yeah, and she kind of becomes the star witness against him later on. Mm-hmm. And then late in life, she uh, says things that, like she thinks he's a government agent. His mom, Margaret, His mom, says yeah. that she's, she thinks he's a government agent and um, that he was a government agent. And His brother briefly had suspicions. Yeah, and um, he, if you've ever seen the Jesse Ventura thing where he talks to uh, Marina Oswald and they do it, they, they speak for a while and then he the cameras are turned off and he speaks to her and she says you know uh what would you do to try to get to the truth of this and he says well, i don't know i'll do anything you know and uh 
then, the documents. <laughs> right. And then she says, well, would you sacrifice your children? Um, which is pretty, you know, that's some, those are mm. grave words, right? But, um, I mean, yeah. for whatever reason, they, they sort of put the, they, well, they'll, I mean, they put the fear of God in her. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, when you see what, what Oswald does after um, he returns, you know, you have to wonder what sort of schemes like Angleton or, uh, or Dulles were trying to do with these guys. Like, they, do they just have a roster of people with strange backgrounds that they can pull out? And so mm-hmm. was Oswald being used for, you know, just the mole hunt specifically or actually to go there and get information, which doesn't seem like that would be very useful, but, you know, or to have this guy who looks to be a communist for whatever things you want to do later. And then um, that seems yeah. to be obviously what it turns into, but was that sort of a uh, opportunistic thing or did um, Angleton have plans for right. this, uh, you know, all along? if he was the one who was, uh, you know, in charge of this false defector program, uh, there's just a lot of, there's, there's a lot of unknowns there, but there's, there's so many, I mean, even, um, it was like Senator Richard Schweiker, who's a Republican who was almost Ronald Reagan's running mate. And he said about Oswald, uh, the fingerprints of intelligence are all over Oswald, um, which seems yeah. to be the case in everything that he did. Yeah, so he, I mean, that's the thing, is that he's he doesn't really last in the Soviet Union very long. It's like, you know, if he, if he was, you know, part of this false defector program, which I think seems very clear, it, it seems like, you know, like we said, the Soviets don't really bite. He gets married to Marina, and, and then they just come back to the United States. It's like they weren't getting anything out of the toy factory. So maybe, you know, he gets called back. Um, but it's like 1962, June 1962, he gets back to the U.S. And surprise, surprise, it's really easy for him to just come back after defecting, <laughs> which should be red <laughs> yeah. flag number one to any of you listening who still are like, I don't know. I think they're talking crazy. Literally, it's very, very simple for him to return. In fact, the embassy gives him a loan to come back. Yeah, you would think that he would be unpopular for, uh, you know, denounce saying that I'm going to give you guys U2 secrets. <laughs> I don't think that they were known for being really chill and laid back about mm-hmm. those things. Um, and yet they're like, okay, we'll give you a loan here and help you out. And so it's that whole, th- that aspect is very, is very, is very strange um, that he's able to do that so easily. And he is debriefed or he's met at the airport, uh, I don't remember which airport, but as Brace said before the before we uh, started recording that, he's met by Spaz Rankin, Rankin or Rakin, Spaz Rankin, right? And uh, a guy who was in the World Anti-Communist League. And so I think it was actually at the docks that he was met in Hoboken, New Jersey. I think they actually mm-hmm. took take a boat back. Um, and yeah, like 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 Aaron was saying, he was met by Spaz Rankin. Spaz Rankin is an interesting character in this, not because I, I you know, I, from from just a just a general vibe check, it doesn't seem like Spaz has a lot to do with the assassination other than the fact that he was in his way, like a part of this apparatus. Right. But, uh, but Spaz's, I mean, this guy's life is just, is, is why I actually ordered his autobiography, although I have not received it yet. Um, but, uh, you know, he's a Bulgarian who was, uh, not quite happy about the communists, uh, uh, you know, coming to power in that country was put into a labor camp, according to himself and, uh, and, and, you know, split fled to the West and, as uh, as listeners of this show, and of course readers of uh, of, 
uh, my favorite blog, VSUP, uh, might might understand. The World Anti-Communist League was a um, well, it was an energetic group of concerned citizens from all across the country. Concerned uh, international citizens. Concerned internationals, yeah. and specifically, you know, for 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 members uh, of the World Anti-Communist League um, from. Uh, from from places in the Eastern Bloc, uh, there was also the anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, uh, which had a lot of crossover there, which was uh, various parties, mostly either um, ranging from from liberal to uh, more almost exclusively fascist parties. Uh, oftentimes, they were made up, uh, especially in the leadership role, in fact, throughout, uh, with former Nazi collaborators. Um and uh, and and Raikin's group was no different. He was uh, actually he was the secretary treasurer of the American Friends of the World Anti Communist League at the time. Also the secretary of the executive board of the Bulgarian National Council, which was a former Nazi collaborative group that was part of the World Anti Communist League and Anti Bolshevik Bloc of Nations. Uh, curiously enough, Raikin himself was not a part of uh, the Bulgarian uh, of. of uh, like the fascist parties in Bulgaria. He was actually a member of the Bulgarian uh, Ag- Agrarian National Union, but he collaborated very closely with the uh, with the Nazi types. Of course, the CIA, uh, and not yeah, to mention, all over this, I mean, yeah. all over this, but it's <laughs> not just the CIA say. too. It's like the Saudis, it's the, yeah. ta- it's, you know, it's the, uh, the Taiwanese government, it's the South Korean government. I mean, the, the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, the world anti-communist league is a huge thing. And there's, in fact, I believe a, Medi- uh, not a Mediterranean, excuse me, Caribbean anti-communist league too that that has some crossover with Oswald too and so this is the cat that meets Oswald at the docks uh, of all of the people in the world uh, and you know generally he had met people at the docks to try to suss them out if they're defectors or what's going on with them but of course my man is Bulgarian he generally meets Bulgarians uh, Oswald uh, and Marina are neither of them are of course Bulgarian so uh, it does beg the question why he was he was sent out there but again I, I there's no evidence that he has anything necessarily to do with the conspiracy conspiracy to kill Kennedy I think it's just indicative of just how entrenched all of this stuff and how, like mm-hmm. was just in the world of uh, of the 50s I mean the late 40s to, to today I guess um, you know it's just it's it's everywhere you can't you can't throw a stone without hitting it yeah, and uh, so Oswald does come back, and he he meets this this interesting character there, and the Anti Communist League, which initially was a bunch of different ones. It was like there was an Asian Anti Communist League, yeah. I think, and um, one of the main figures of that is Yoshio Kodama, who we mentioned uh, mm-hmm. in a previous episode as the war, Class A war criminal who was an admiral. Prior to that, he'd been Yakuza, and then he uses all of this looted. Uh, platinum and diamonds to set up this huge slush fund for the uh, ruling LDP party that keep, makes them part, sort of a one-party state CIA asset, essentially. <laughs> like the whole country uh, is in some ways almost. Mm-hmm. And he, and this guy is, uh, he's part of the, the World Anti-Communist League later. And they have this funding that comes from presumably those sources of like looted, uh, looted gold that the Japanese acquired during their uh, imperial reign, you know, which is pretty considerable in the early part of the first half of the 20th century. And uh, also, you know, the KMT is involved with uh, the World Anti-Communist League and they control, uh, you know, a lot of the proceeds from the opium traffic, uh, you know, in the Golden Triangle in the aftermath of World War II and all the way through the Vietnam War era. So they have a lot of money that is totally unaccountable 
and they're connected to the heads of state of other uh, of other American allies and their intelligence services, which are impossible to, to monitor really. I mean, we can't even monitor our own, much less those of another country. And so the, the power of this sort of clandestine, you know, international apparatus is a, is a big part of the, the U S empire, the uh, American century, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so, you know, that Oswald is met by a figure within that that world and that he later works for another one guy banister which you alluded to earlier um mm-hmm. this is uh you know i think this is important to notice uh in his in his background most i don't know i don't personally i mean not to my knowledge do i know anybody who operates on that that level and i've you know met more people than oswald should have he was a pretty not a person from high society or or even it was like sort of a lower working class yeah. sort of background like not somebody who should be befriending yeah. the people that he does and he gets back in uh, the summer of 1962 and then in um, September of 1962 he meets George de Morenschild and his wife and this is a meeting that you know George de Morenschild doesn't have any reason to consort <sighs> with a, a fellow like this he's from an oil aristocrat family a uh, white Russian family and uh he but he meets him he meets Oswald and his wife at the suggestion of the Dallas uh you know the top CIA guy in Dallas uh, Jay Walton Moore and um I think Ben is Ben can Ben can say more on Demore and Schilt so I might uh, let him speak here Yeah We should yeah we should spend some time on this guy because this is a real fun character <laughs> in this I, story I, I want to make clear too here and and again with all the usual caveats I don't think these are good people I don't think that they're people who I you know are are you know wonderful characters throughout history that I'm glad they existed but I like George in a weird <laughs> way I, I, it's He's him. wild and I, it's like I like like the three characters from sort of this whole scheme that I sort of have this weird affection for, just because they're such wild freaks. I mean, real yeah. freaks are yeah. Demoren's Child, Sturgis, uh, Fiorini, sure. and uh, and and Lorenz. I mean, I think that they are they are just absolute weirdos who could not have found the sort of lives they found in any other sort of industry than the industry that they were in. Yeah. It's like, everything is so like bloodless now that we've just have these sort of like sad, we have like horrible, like Harvard educated bureaucrats, you know, that have like absolutely no, they're just like totally bloodless. Like no, they're, you know, they've lost all kind of like um, style or in like, <laughs> you know, like craziness. And there's, like, mm-hmm. there's no panache. Yeah. Everyone's just like, a, yeah. But Back then, they had some real, <laughs> probably because all the Nazism running around, but there's some real kooky, esoteric guys. Shield is like, uh, I mean, we're, I'm going to butcher his name constantly, but that's part of the fun. Yeah, he's real fun. He feels like a real peacock, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the, the Warren Commission really tried to play that aspect of him mm-hmm. up, sort yeah. of like make him seem like kind of a playboy and sort of a traveler, you know, not tied down. Um, I think as a good cover for the fact that he was pretty clearly a CIA asset. Mm. Uh, oh, absolutely. For a very long time. Yeah. Um, and like the fact that, the fact that, um, because Aaron, you mentioned this, the, like why, like why would Oswald be with these high society people? Because DeMorne Schelt, um in, in Dallas around this time, we're going to talk about the, the Dallas oil elite milieu I know, again, we gotta, but uh, we got to hit that again. Friend. 
but but because de Mornschelt, um was part of this group of white Russian um, people who had come over to the U.S. after the Bolshevik Revolution, they had sort of lost all of their ancestral holdings, and you know they had been expropriated and all of this, so they came to the United States. And obviously, as you can imagine, ideologically became some some of the most fervent anti-communists, yeah. total reactionaries. Like, yeah, totally. He was like the son of a czarist official. Like, oh, he was yeah, like yeah. Way yeah. Up son there. of a czarist oil man, actually. Yeah. Although I will yeah. say it's funny, David Talbot does call him sort of new left, um, which works on a few levels, but it does seem like <laughs> De Morin's child yeah. was. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's as firm in all of his political beliefs as some of his compatriots would be. Yeah, he definitely seems that way. When you compare him to like um, somebody like Bowie or, yeah. or other people in the other people in that circle, he definitely seems like less, a little less ideologically committed. Kind of, uh, you know, maybe in it for the for the fun, in it for yeah. the laughs, and certainly the money. I mean, he was a big, yeah, like you mentioned, like he was a he was an oil geologist. That was sort of his ostensibly his trade. I think a great cover because obviously sure. it provides a lot of you know. There's a good reason that you'd be going to these all of these different places. And um, yeah, like like Aaron mentioned, like he the the idea that Oswald would be hanging out with this, you know, I mean, at this point, right? Oswald is a Marxist, like he's an avowed Marxist. Uh, Marxist Leninist. He, he was a Marxist Leninist. He had defected to the Soviet Union. He had renounced his American citizenship. Mm-hmm. So why, when he comes back to Dallas, is he hanging out with these virulently anti-communist, mm. you know, white Russian? Uh, immigrants like it doesn't that, like why would that his happen it doesn't make any is sense this daughter i mean i mean you know like his wife is a soviet right. national like it absolutely right. it makes absolutely no sense that she yeah. would be welcomed in we've uh, there's and by the way i've never read any sort of coherent even close to coherent explanation for this it's just like yeah they just i don't know he wanted to learn you know, speak russian with people you know it's yeah. like like yeah. again this is like somebody coming from cuba like who defected to Cuba coming back after a couple of years and moving to Miami because they want to speak Russian better. Yeah. Or excuse yeah. me, speak, speak Spanish with people. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And the, as Aaron and mentioned, Fort Worth, Texas. I mean, this is, you know, yeah. it's a place that, you know, is pretty central to the story. Yeah. It's like, and as, as Aaron mentioned, the, the sort of uh, initiating event for why De became introduced to uh, Oswald, because he didn't know him, but he knew of yeah. him. B- Bowie and other, you know, George Bowie and other people in the in that circle were were knew him, knew Oswald, and yeah, Jay Walton Moore, the CIA official in Dallas, which by the way, completely illegal for there to be a CIA station in Dallas, oh, right? Absolutely. That's, <laughs> but in any case, there was, and and um, Wal- uh, Walton sort of gave, you know, the, the way the CIA doesn't work, it's not like he said go befriend Oswald, but Walton gave Demorenshelt the idea that he should become friends with Oswald. And Demorenshelt, having been familiar with various agency, for example, uh, Demorenshelt um, uh, claimed he was on a walking tour uh, passing through Guatemala City. Just happened to be at exactly the same time that uh, Operation Mongoose was was being run out of Guatemala City, right? So uh, uh, Demorenshelt was obviously uh, a CIA asset at this time. He understood what Walton was, mm. what uh, what Jay Walton Moore was saying. And um, so Bowie introduces Oswald to DeMorenschelt, and uh, they become his handlers. Uh, Gene and Gene and George DeMorenschelt become his handlers, and they do everything. You know, they're bringing him to anti-Castro meetings, which we have already discussed the fact that Oswald was the only member of the New Orleans, you know, f- uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee, mm-hmm. right? Why is he now going to anti-Castro meetings in, in Dallas uh, with these with these two anti-Bolshevik Russians? They, you know, they would drive him to his dentist appointments, right? I mean, he he really needed some help, so they they provided that to him. Uh, they secured jobs for him. One of the jobs they got for him 
uh, was actually reviewing, uh, it was a map making company that made diagrams yep. for the military of Cuba in particular. Uh, that was a, a job that DeMorenschelt got for him. Uh, there was this incident where DeMorenschelt, uh, and I don't want to get too deeply into this, but there was this Bircher general, Edwin Walker, yes. uh, who was who was another you know virulent anti-communist. And um, uh, it's, it seems like Walker may have known DeMorenschelt or, or, or was known to him because um, after Oswald allegedly shot him, Marina Oswald recalled that DeMorenschelt was in, in the Oswald home one time and sort of uh, facetiously shouted up the stairs, you know, how the hell could you miss Edwin Walker, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, sort of like playing it off as a joke that, that he had tried to kill this guy. Um, just totally bizarre, like totally bizarre behavior on DeMorenschelt's part. Um, and then at some point, uh, uh, essentially, they pass Oswald off to his next set of handlers, the Paynes, mm-hmm. uh, who are the ones that set him up with the, the book depository job and all of that. So they, they have their own story. But this, um, yeah, this period where DeMorenschild and Oswald are, are in connection, um, it, it doesn't, it, on the face of it, doesn't make any sense. There's no reason why he would have taken an interest in Oswald, seemingly. Yeah. Um, and given the, the facts of DeMorenschild, I mean, I, I haven't even gotten into the fact that DeMorenschild and George H.W. Bush yeah, knew each other. Yeah, I want to talk about yep. that, yeah. So, so um, got introduced to the Bush family because um, I think he was the uncle of H.W.'s um, roommate at Andover, Phillips Andover. Yeah, the, he uh, was. The prep school here, up here in Massachusetts. And, um, and uh, he became, he was also close with Jackie. Uh, he, uh, J- Jackie Kennedy called him Uncle George as a child. Uh, yeah. Like he ran in these elite circles on on both sides of this conspiracy. I so, mean, the, one of the wildest person. things is that he actually went to to Jackie Kennedy's mother's home. Yeah, after fairly, the assassination. After the assassination, and like yes. you know, he and his wife, his wife and 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 uh, and you know, Ken, uh, Jackie Kennedy's mother were like collapsing, weeping into each other's arms at this. And they were not invited back to the home after that. But like, I mean, of all of the people in the world, like one of Oswald's closest companions is at Jackie Kennedy's mother's house. I mean, yeah. again, Oswald is a nobody, right? Like that is, I, I, I you know, that that's one of those things that makes you, that makes you really just like, it, uh, it just actually raise it, an eyebrow. Yeah, it makes no it makes no fucking sense at all. I think all. there was also he had also made claims like in interviews. There's like some interviews with him where he just like says crazy stuff. Yeah, he rules. Like yeah. I really encourage people to like read up on this guy because there's some really great stuff. But at some point he like claims that Oswald really liked Kennedy, which I think is very funny. He and, says that a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he yeah. would say that a lot. And and um there's like, multiple people that say that both he and his wife, like vigorously said that Oswald was a patsy. Like it almost seems like he had a kinship with him. Like he's very, and the way that he speaks about Oswald in interviews is that he's almost like protective over him or he feels like somewhat responsible. It seems like for what happens to to Oswald, which is very interesting. And I think indicative of the kind of relationship that he understood he was supposed to have with him. Yeah. You, you mentioned, Brace like this idea of like having a certain kind of like affection for him, and it's yeah. par- I think part of it for me at least comes from the fact that he had no idea what he was into. Yeah, mm. and yeah. and after the assassination, clearly understood like what role he had played in it. Um, and like when he, um, you know, when he was at the Warren Commission, 
um, you know, he said at the time that it seemed like they had already decided that, that Oswald was going to be there, uh, be their guy, that he was going to mm-hmm. be their lone gunman, uh, and that, you know, that guilt had already been established. Uh, and so again, like you say, like he seems sort of protective of, of him. Um, yeah. And I mean, the whole, uh, what happened to him at the end of his life and the oh, fact yeah. that it seems pretty Incredible. clear that he yeah. was, um, that he was being tracked and, and he actually wrote a letter to George H.W. Bush, yep. Uh, where he asked for help and and um, HW basically told him to fuck off, and then he died not yeah. not very long after that. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's just a strange. It's a very very strange set of circumstances. I mean, when the uh, particularly, I, I mean, I think the reason that he because it seems to me that he got. I mean, he got suicided, right? You know, he he committed suicide. Uh, that is the official cause of death. But I think it's it seems pretty clear to me that it was in connection to the fact that he was uh, potentially going to testify for the House Select Committee. Yes. Yep. Um, and I which, think, yeah, and it was unclear. I think he had been spouting off in interviews and stuff. And I think given how, as you know, we'll go into as, as many episodes as this take, how many loose ends uh, had been wrapped up. And I would say the smallest loose ends. <laughs> Yeah. are taken care of in this case. Um, it's not shocking that he would be suicided. I have that, the letter that he wrote, Bush. Um, it's it's really like, so this was in 1976. So you're probably correct. The year about before the house. suicide or death. Yeah. 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 And, about, and right around with the select committee, he says, maybe you will be able to, to bring a solution into this hopeless situation I find myself in. My wife and I find ourselves surrounded by some vigilantes, our phone bugged, and we are being followed everywhere. Either FBI is involved in this or they do not want to accept my complaints. We are driven to insanity by this situation. I tried to write stupidly and unsuccessfully about Lee H. Oswald and must have angered a lot of people. Could you do something to remove this net around us? This will be my last request for help and I will not annoy you anymore. Signed, G. DeMorenchild. And Bush, like, he, like, says, I don't know who this guy is. But mm-hmm. that's, like, fucking yeah. fake. I mean, that's that's a lie. Fake news. That's total fake news. I mean, there's, like, they... Uh, well, DeMorean Shaw is also famous. Like, well, he's famous, yeah. but he also had like Bush's contact info in his yeah. Rolodex, like from the fucking oil company, like yeah. w- from way back, you know? Um, yeah, because DeMorean Sheldon and Oz, uh, and uh, Bush were both involved in in um, uh, oil. Cu- you know, uh, Bush was involved in uh, the, the CIA cutout Zapata oil. And at the same time, uh, Demorenschild, because it was like I don't want to completely exonerate Demorenschild here, because he was involved in the Cuban Venezuelan oil yeah. trust. Oh yeah, and his uh, work was, in, ha- in Haiti, by the way, yes. his like reward for his role in Papa this, book, right. which we should mention. Yeah, right, right, and and so you know he he's he seemed to have some uh, because the because this Cuban Venezuelan oil trust basically collapsed after the revolution, um, so it seemed you know he he seemed to have a, a certain uh, financial stake in in castro being overthrown mm. right so it's yeah. uh, i don't mean to completely uh you know exonerate him or say he was a good guy the other the, uh you mentioned that idea of them being driven to of him being driven to madness and um he actually was brought to parkland hospital which is the, the hospital mm-hmm. that jfk was brought to for electroshock therapy for his mm. supposed persecution complex wee, wee, uh, wee. when in reality obviously he was of course being surveilled extensively uh, as he noted in his in his letter, I don't think that he had a persecution complex. I think he was uh, clearly being surveilled, and it and it yeah. did seem to drive him to madness. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, because at the very end of his life, he gets um, 
he gets interviewed by Edward J. Epstein, who's kind of writing a, um, uh, how would I describe it? It's kind of soft selling the JFK mm-hmm. conspiracy angle. I would say kind of a limited hangout cover piece. And, um, and Epstein, uh, he, he does this interview with Epstein. Um, no relation, he, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the day that he is killed. And then he, um, he does this interview, I think in the morning he comes down for lunch uh, with and with his daughter and his daughter tells him that uh, that Gate and Fonzie from the uh, mm-hmm. House Select Committee had, had come to see him and, and had missed him. And um, and that night he was found dead uh, in his in his room with a shotgun blast uh, through the back of his head. Uh, and uh, which uh, which Bill O'Reilly claims he heard. Uh, yes. I, yes. I, highly I, doubt I remember when did. Killing Kennedy came out, Bill O'Reilly was he definitely did not know. They figured out like his coworkers were all like, no, he was in Houston yeah, no. at the time. Yeah, like, total, yeah. total Bill O'Reilly says he was literally knocking on his door when he heard it. Yeah, right. I will say uh, he is one of like many people uh, who decided to kill themselves uh, shooting not in the usual spots of their body. Uh, within a very short time period of Gate and Fozzie uh, as an investigator for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, yeah. Yeah. specifically at this point focusing on JFK uh, after contacting them. There's a lot of people who shot themselves in the chest, uh, which is a strange way to kill yourself. Um, within- yeah, not to mention committing suicide with a, a long rifle is not a not a super easy thing to do or a no. thing. Well, a series arms. of pulleys and long stuff, arms. you know, right. tow, right. obviously the tow method works. Yes. So it came out recently uh, in this book by Greg Pulgrain called The Incubus of Intervention that there was a Dulles connection to the Moore and Schilt going back uh, for decades, really. Um, so his, uh, his father was a guy running a Standard Oil um, you know, connected project or owned project, uh, more or less, in Baku, uh, the oil-rich mm-hmm. part of, uh, of Azer- present-day Azerbaijan with all this Caspian oil. And I mean, it, when Hitler tries to take Stalingrad in World War II, it's to cut off the supply of oil because Baku is so strategic. And then, uh, they, you know, the Nazis fail there and that spells their doom, right? So this is a really important, you know, resource. And it was George de Morenschild's father who ran this, this oil operation. And um, as an aside, in the early 90s, after the Cold War ends, the U.S. sends jihadis into this same area and uh, eventually is able to bring Azerbaijan over to the U.S. camp and uh, do something that, uh, you know, the Nazis couldn't do. So, uh, for what that's worth. But the interesting thing about Morenschild and Dulles here <coughs> is that his, he, in, back in 1920, 1921, the, um, his, his father was working with Alan Dulles. So, Alan Dulles was lobbying for Standard Oil, uh, and they were negotiating with Nobel interests in Russia, uh, Baron Sergius Alexander von Morenschild, right? And so this connection between Standard Oil, Dulles, and the de Morenschild family goes back to the 1920s. And um, Paul Grain, this history professor in Australia who's really written probably the, you know, uh, maybe the the best book on the actual coup and the way that it, that it happened, you know, by interviewing a lot of the, the principals involved 
uh, in Indonesia in 1965. He also goes into what happened with you know JFK and and Dulles, and he brings Demorenshield into this story. And so during when Demorenshield is testifying at the um, at the during the Warren Commission, he's one of the people that testifies the longest because he knows Oswald so well. And he's being interviewed by this guy Bruce Jenner, and later he tells people that um, you know he he felt threatened during the Warren Commission. Uh, hearings because Alan Dulles was there and he was present when Jenner was asking him all these questions. And so he kept a lot of details hidden, especially things that were oil related and things that uh, involved Alan Dulles. Um, so he, he had a sense that he was, you know, afraid of, of this guy, even during the, um, even during the Warren commission. And uh, you know, as Ben alludes to, he doesn't, he, he doesn't. He doesn't seem to be aware of the plot, really. But he knows enough to keep his mouth shut about about these things. Mm-hmm. And then later, he, you know, when there's more interest in the case in the '70s, you know, in the fallout of Watergate, and the Church Committee goes and they look at the performance of the FBI and the CIA. They write a whole volume of the Church Committee report is on the performance of the intelligence agencies, and they find that they did an inadequate job of investigating uh, the um, assassination. And so, you know, this eventually leads to the second congressional investigation that Ben alludes to, the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And during this time in the mid-70s, he had been talking to Epstein and this guy who seems to be Dutch intelligence named uh, Willem Oltmans. And uh, this, he begins to make more and more statements about about, um, Oswald and his connection to him. Oltman's, for, for what it's worth, always believed that DeMornschild's death was a murder, um, and so did his wife. Um, and I think the relationship of, um, of DeMornschild was that he was an asset of sorts, and uh, he would do favors for the agency, that they would ask him to do something like what he did with Oswald, and then they would give him something like this deal in Haiti, where he got $200,000 or something like that to go to Haiti on some sort of um, oil geology survey, but who even knows what he really did there? He doesn't seem like a scientist. It seems pretty much for laying in the cut, he got his 200K. Yeah. yeah. And, and he later writes a manuscript called, with the title, I Am a Patsy. Um, and it was written after Alan Dulles had yes. died. And uh, yeah. that's where he describes those, um, you know, the presence of Alan Dulles at the Warren Commission. He writes, Dulles did not interfere in the proceedings, but was there as a distant threat. So um, this this connection between Demorenshield and I mean he's got a connection to Alan Dulles he's got a connection to Jackie Kennedy and he's befriending this not especially uh, cosmopolitan or erudite Lee Harvey Oswald fellow who's 23 years old I mean it would kind of be ridiculous for me to to befriend someone you know because we have we actually do have some Russians uh, with with money that come over here and I can't couldn't imagine palling around with suddenly like a 60 year old guy from the right wing Russian, you know, community. And like, and Oswald is, is, you know, it's even more ridiculous. So um, there's not a plausible in this explanation about, about their friendship and about what happens to Demore and Schilt. Yeah. According to Ullman's, like he, like, Demore and Schilt was saying that he knew Jack Ruby. He said that, you know, he basically said that he felt responsible for Oswald and like the entire, he like almost like setting up the assassination in a weird way. Like he, um, he was giving him names of CIA and FBI uh, agents for like the Dutch publishers to try to get 
for whatever book they were working on. Um, and at some point, like Olmens was like, okay, we're going to, I'm going to get a Soviet um, diplomat to come join us. And it freaks Demorenschild out so much that he's just like, he's like, okay, they're at dinner. And he's like, I'll be right back. That sounds great. And then just like, doesn't come back to dinner. <laughs> yeah. Classic and totally move. freaks out and goes back to yeah. the United States. And then six months later, he's out. They call that a bell and goodbye. Yeah. I always just take off before the check comes. Yeah, it seems like he smelled a setup. He, yeah, he it seems like he thought, oh, they're gonna introduce me to this Soviet diplomat and that's gonna become uh, you know, that's gonna become an issue for me going down, you know, going forward. They're gonna set me up as as some kind of Soviet agent. And that's um, gonna disqualify my testimony, et cetera, right. et cetera, whatever. Right. Yeah, he was yeah, it was yeah, he really had all all eyes open at the end of his life, it seemed. Well, De Mornschild also had his eyes open uh, at a certain party where uh, he introduces the Oswald family to the Payne family. And now this is a, such a peculiar incident because I, I can't remember exactly. I mean, I guess it must be in El Paso, but there is a house party or something like that where uh, where Oswald is attending as a guest of De Mornschild. I think Marina is there as well. And, uh, and De Mornschild introduces them to one Ruth Payne. And she says she never sees Demorne's child again. Um, you know that is that is it. They're handed off, but but very quickly um, the Oswalds become, I, I guess, integrated into the into the Payne family. Now the Paynes live apart, uh, but 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 you know, taking one look at Ruth's sort of family sets off a lot of alarm bells because these aren't just like, I mean, these are about as clear connections as Demora Schild's connections to intelligence. I mean, I think her brother works for USAID. I mean, her whole family is, I'm sure someone knows more of the details off the top of their head than I do, but the entire family is just very connected to the U S government and particularly uh, our secret services. Yeah. Her sis, the, the Ruth Payne's sister worked for the CIA. Um, as an employee <laughs> oh, of the that's CIA. pretty direct. Yeah. That yeah. works. <laughs> Um, her, her mother was best friends with Alan Dulles's mistress. Um, yeah. His main mistress, his like main side woman, like the, the one that was also, again, I want to make it clear here. Alan Dulles was Polly was in a polyamorous (laughs) relationship with his wife. And his mistress, uh, who also both, by the way, both went to Jung. It was ethical for, uh, non-monogamy. Ethical non-monogamy, exactly. Yeah. So I want to be clear that yeah, the, the pains were connected, uh, but they, but they knew the Dulleses, right? And the uh, and, and so Ruth Payne is married to Michael Payne, and Michael Payne's Michael Payne is the stepson of the inventor of the Bell helicopter, which was very popular model in the Vietnam War. Um, if you've ever seen, I, I have one photograph that I show in classes of a, a field where there's like uh, 16 Bell helicopters taken off and the Vietnamese figured out how to how to destroy them in a particular way. And so that just means you got to make more of them. And um, they had a lot of files and things in their house that, that suggested that um, they were infiltrating or, or keeping tabs on local groups because they were sort of left like, uh, you know, liberal uh, people. Like they're sort of, they weren't Quakers exactly. They were like part of the Unitarian church, but um, she went to a Quaker college, Swarthmore, and she actually taught at a Quaker school, a uh, Germantown friend school where my, where my wife went to, uh, high school actually which is funny um 
And they wanted hmm. to learn Russian supposedly. And so they're going to practice with uh, Marina and, and Lee. And uh, they become later the most um, important witnesses uh, in terms of whenever there's a problem with the case or something that needs to be, uh, you know, there's some sort of evidence that might be useful. It just comes out of this garage that, that where the magic evidence always is like uh, things about his trip to Mexico city, which seem very bizarre yeah. and perhaps to have not even happened. It's hard to say. And uh, his visits with like this letter he was trying to write with, to the Soviet um, director of assassinations in the Western hemisphere, uh, this fellow in Kostikov who, Oswald supposedly visits, but these pictures that come back are very strange and don't look like Oswald and um, just a, a number, a number of things in the, there's an article written about her and uh, you know, I think it was written in the nineties and she, uh, there were groups around here that would go to Central America to like help with the, uh, in Nicaragua and other places help uh, refugees or, other uh, people in like Guatemala, you know, this sort of like lefty, uh, you know, uh, sort of organizations of like p- peace activists, right? And uh, Ruth Payne supposedly visited, you know, these people and uh, was recognized right away as somebody that you didn't want to uh, you'd be with. They would be like, oh, that's Ruth Payne. She's CIA. You know, don't talk, don't talk to her. Uh, Marina at one point says something to the effect of like, uh, I've been told I shouldn't talk to um to Ruth Payne anymore because she's sympathetic to the CIA or something like that. And, um, she uh, reportedly her daughter, she's estranged from one of her daughters and uh, the, and the explanation or story behind that is that her daughter doesn't, her daughter knows her mother was a part of something very evil and, uh, does not want to uh, associate with her, um, you know, perhaps until she comes clean about it or something like that. So, She's a, a character that is. If anyone uh, knows, uh, anyone knows the daughter, hit up the DMs. We'd like to talk to her. <laughs> I tried to actually find out if that, if the, if I could find her name, um, uh, but I, I mm. never, I never could anywhere. Um, it would be interesting to do that. I believe that Ruth Payne is still alive, and she's like in her nineties. Yeah. Um, and Michael Payne might be alive also. I think they might. They got divorced. I don't know if they ever got remarried. And they supposedly retired at the, st- the same retirement community. So um, they just sort of mm. stayed together despite being divorced mm-hmm. later on. But uh, well, she's it, some- it did seem sort of like their marriage was a little, like their marriage is a little bit of a like marriage, marriage of convenience, as they, <laughs> people say, like, you know. Seems like it's very much. I mean, it sounds like cheesy or whatever, but if people have ever seen that show, The Americans, I mean, it very much seems like that. Where it's like it is this CIA like fucking asset family that that is their job to be stationed, you know, at this house where they live this life. Um, but it's all kind of fake, you know. Like you mentioned the things coming out of the garage, and like it is quite literally like that. Like every any time there was a question, they're like, "Oh, funny you should mention we have a photo of that," or "Oh, funny you should mention." Let me just go in the garage because we actually have a record of that happening. Um, just uh, incredible, incredible uh, documentation pops out of nowhere to support the biography, the official biography of Oswald that I guess we're dedicating this episode to debunking. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I I find her what you say about the marriage is probably true that it's some sort of strange relationship. I mean, she seems uh, kind of she's depicted in a 
in the Oliver Stone film, they give her a different name, but they really capture this kind of creepiness of her, I think. And uh, I, uh, you know, I've known a lot. I've known more Quakers and, and, and such as I've been here, uh, you know, on the East Coast for a while. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of really great, wonderful people. And the, and the philosophy is very good, uh, I think, and agreeable, a lot of anti-war uh, activism uh, and a history of opposition to slavery and so on. So there's a lot of things that are great, but there's also this, you'll occasionally, there's, there's old money and uh, you know, it, it's mm. old money that goes way back and very establishment. And uh, so to sort of be a part of this faith, that's like uh, going to, you know, really recognize the humanity of everyone in ways that are pretty admirable, but then you have old money and old money and money is, uh, you know, to have that sort of position in uh, society is, is always, you know, uh, kind of cor maybe corrupting in, in some ways. And uh, so I've, I, I feel like I sort of know that I've never met anybody as much like this as her, like uh, according to her biography, but yeah. I, I have, I've had a sense of like a, a strangeness about some of uh, these this, these old money families, even when they're you know affiliated with like a, a faith that's like on the American spectrum, uh, pretty righteous. You know, it's not, they're not like uh, you know these other right wing evangelical groups. And yet, you know, this is a pretty those pretty sinister things that she was involved in. Quakers are still part of the Wasp brethren at yeah. the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, really, you know, hard well, to escape that. It's not only that, but I mean, one of history's greatest leaders, I mean, let alone America's greatest presidents, was, of course, a Quaker himself, mm. um, Mr. Richard Nixon. So, you know, and a man who did bring peace on earth by by going to China and uh, and really just, I mean, seven mid-70s when China really started getting good. And so, you know, he just brought with him all that goodwill and, and, yeah. and love uh, and love with him. There's there's three there's three naughty Quakers in U.S. history, in my estimation. If you'd taken my U.S. history course, you'd, you'd be able to rattle them off. But I'll just I'll tell you now, so you don't have to do all that. It's uh, the first one is A. Mitchell Palmer of the Palmer Raids. He was a Quaker. Uh -huh. I'm sorry to say, and Herbert Hoover, who uh, you know he could have done more in the Great Depression. And Richard Nixon killed millions of people, uh, and so he and he sabotaged the Vietnam War from being ended earlier. So um, he's got to be he's got to be on that list too. Well, people people never really take into consideration that if you kill someone, they go to heaven. So you're actually like literally giving them a ticket to eternal paradise. Not really sure what's so wrong with that, but yeah, they kill them all like God sorted out. Exactly. Philosophy, yeah. People yeah. people really pay attention to the kill them all part of that, but they yeah. don't pay attention to the fact that God is literally sorting you out. So not really sure what's wrong with that, <laughs> unless right. you've been bad yourself, which you know. Um, <laughs> But uh, if, you, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, so Oswald is hanging around in uh, in Texas. You know, uh, beating up his wife, uh, not shooting yes. Edwin Walker because you know there is some. There is some. I mean, we we won't really spend much time on that. But you know, there is no, as far as I know, no real evidence that that uh, General Edwin Walker who was like a fascist general, like many yeah. of our generals, but was more sort of openly fascist than a lot of them, um, was, uh, was shot at by somebody, uh, when he was, when he was making a visit to Texas, that somebody is often thought to be, or sort of said yeah. to be Lee Harvey Oswald, but there is no, uh, there's, there's no evidence that that actually happened. Um, I, I don't think even much circumstantial evidence that it happened. Uh, although I'm sure someone could assemble some, 
Um, but uh, but but Lee Harvey takes a little trip down to New Orleans after that, which is uh, for those who don't understand patois. With the words I just said, were New Orleans, which is a city in Louisiana. And uh, and Lee Harvey had lived in New Orleans as a kid. Uh, you know, I, that's when he was in the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of other people were sort of making their way to new Orleans around this time too. Um, a lot of other people who had also recently come to America from a country that was now seen as in the, uh, Soviet bloc, uh, Cuba. There was a, uh, there was, it was a, a new Orleans at the time, which would sort of struck me as odd, even though I, I get it. New Orleans in the South Gulf of Mexico, all that kind of stuff. It does seem odd to me that there was such a big kind of Cuban, um, exile population there, at least such an active one. But of course you have the swamps nearby, um, you have Lake Pontchartrain, all these kind of things. Um, so, you know, that, that does make sense. I mean, the exiles were definitely training at swamps and on islands in, in Florida. So why wouldn't they do the same in New Orleans? But, uh, but Lee Harvey Oswald goes down to New Orleans and decides to, uh, to, to really get his, um, his name out there by starting the fair play for Cuba committee. Now, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, I think we went into this maybe in the last episode, so I, again, won't get too far into it, but, uh, but it should be known that there is one, a single known member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans chapter, and that would be Lee Harvey Oswald. And, uh, and apparently, you know, there's whispers that there's another member. We, we, we have no indication of who that is, if it even exists. It could also would just be bullshit. Um, but, uh, but he, he makes some energetic friendships while he's down there, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, he, it's in April that he, uh, goes down there. So he gets on April fool's day, 1963, he gets fired by Jagger's child Stovall, which is, uh, the map making company that Ben referenced, which again would have been, um, in, that did work on maps for, uh, the, the military, right? So they were, a, they were very much connected to the military, you know, military intelligence and, uh, circles. But he gets fired from that job, and he decides on April 17th that he's going to go down there. So Ruth Payne drives him to the bus station, and then he goes down there. And uh, he gets a job with Riley Coffee Company, which is another uh, CIA-connected firm. Like, uh, the, the, the owner of it was um, a right-wing um, person with CIA connections. And uh, after the after the assassination, like a a, a very unusual number, I, I believe this is from Riley Coffee Company. A very unusual number of the employees that worked with him go on to work at NASA, um, which is a strange place mm. for them. Well, a lot of people after college use uh, coffee shops as kind of like a you know halfway <laughs> point before they figure out where they're going next. So right. he was just like trying to figure everything out. I do want to say, you know, you said it had CIA connections. To be clear, like William B. Riley, who's the owner of the Riley Coffee Company. Um, I mean, it's like in in uh, documents that he was he had worked for the CIA for like mm -hmm. years. In you know, I mean, this is well documented. So it was like fully just a. It's very weird to say that the CIA o was owned and operating coffee shops, but that's that was what's happening, and that's where Oswald was working. <laughs> Check this, check this lie out. Actually, the character of Ignatius J. Riley, too, the original backstory for that was that he worked for the, for the CIA, too. So it's another little New Orleans connection. <laughs> and for people who have seen, you know, this will be, you know, nothing new, but for people who have seen uh, Stone's, Stone's movie, the, uh, JFK, 
because it's very cute the way they like show all this. But the coffee company is literally right smack dab in the middle of like all of the New Orleans intelligence agencies. <laughs> um, it's like right in the center, uh, like close to the CIA, FBI, Secret Service, ONI. It's like right across the street in this like little block radius. It's really fucking weird to think about actually. Um, but that's where Oswald are committed Marxist Leninist who has only but a year prior uh, returned from his defection from the Soviet Union decides to make his home. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense is what I'm saying. Makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. He leaves his wife who has a kid, right? At least one yeah. kid by then is maybe pregnant with another. And My then man. Oh, I'm going to go to New Orleans <laughs> to uh, work in a coffee place and uh, pass out some fair play for Cuba literature. Classic. Sounds more like an anarchist if you ask me. <laughs> listen, yeah. listen. I just, you know, you don't get it, baby. Like New Orleans is right on the the precipice. Like if I just push him over. By the way, Lee Harvey Oswald. I want to make it clear: was not a member of the Communist Party or 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 the Socialist Workers Party, whose newspaper he's also holding up in the in that those famous backyard photos. I believe he, much like Bernie Sanders, and like also I think like half of the people who went on to found libertarianism had been, or excuse me, neoconservative neoconservatism had been a member of YPSL, the Young People's Socialist League. But uh, in his youth, but I mean, Harvey was Harv. Why am I calling him that? Harv was never a member of the Communist Party. He wrote them letters, and they were not returned. And this is, by the way, the Communist Party is hurting for membership at this point. Like things are, you know, yeah. this is this is post um, secret lie speech by Khrushchev, and uh, and I, I get it. Like obviously, a lot of people left the the Communist Party, you know, U.S. Communist Party. Because they could see that you know it followed Moscow's direction. Moscow was making a, a uh, you know it was returning the capitalist class, of course, uh, you know led by Khrushchev, and so they were they were now you know sun was rising in the east as they say. But it doesn't make any sense that uh, that that Lee Harvey Oswald just would be not. A, I don't even think he got a letter back from anybody, and so he's just out there on his own printing up these flyers and uh, and hanging out with anti Castro Cubans, which is again much like the white russians hanging out with an a, a diaspora community of exiles of very 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 far right wing and murderous exiles from the a country that you ostensibly support um i mean that is uh that is odd behavior um and uh and and it gets him into a little bit of trouble too because you know, there's this sort of famous incident where he he you know he, he was hanging out with these guys and trying to sort of like get in with them. I think that the the main guy was called Carlos Bringer. I can't remember how he's pronounce it. Bringier. Bringier. Oh, very New Orleans. Bringier. And uh, you know, he's hanging out with these guys, being like, yeah, yeah, I want to get, you know, I want to kind of get in your thing. And then he's he's out on I think Canal Street, handing out Fair Play for Cuba uh, committee flyers, and they come up to him. And uh, and apparently he he said to to Bringier, he's like hit me like come on hit me and there's this very well publicized brawl where uh, where everybody gets arrested and and you know like I was saying kind of at the top of the episode this this is great for a story right this is building his and and you know there's a called I actually misspoke before these aren't called stories they're called legends and this is building his legend right because you know it makes the newspapers this guy this guy is beat up you know for for standing up for his committed communist beliefs and not only that he actually later goes on the radio twice 
um, I believe with Bringier as his opponent at one point um, to, uh, to, to, to talk about the, uh, to, to talk about the situation with Cuba. And, uh, you can actually find the transcripts. You can probably actually find the recordings too, but I was reading the transcripts last night of, uh, of, of Harvey on the, of Harv on the radio. And, uh, <laughs> they're pretty funny. I mean, that's, I think that's one of those, one of those interviews is where he says that, uh, that he's not, a, he's not a communist. He's a, um, he, uh, a Marxist, a, a Marxist Leninist, <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, what's it called? Uh, uh, death is around the corner. He does a really great impression of these, these, these radio interviews. But, uh, but one of the answers he gives, uh, is he says, the difference is, as I have said, a very great difference. Many parties, many countries are based on Marxism. Many countries such as Great Britain display very socialistic aspects or characteristics. I might point to the socialized medicine in Britain. So we see a little bit that he is a CIA agent because he's obviously mm. espousing the Nazi ideal of social democracy there. He's <laughs> getting ready for his job at Jacobin Magazine. Yes. Yeah, he, uh, the debate, he also says he slips up or whatever in the debate at one point, and, and mm-hmm. he says, they ask him about Russia and his, you know, his time in Russia, and he says, well, uh, yeah, I was there, but I was under the protection of the U.S. government. Or, uh, I mean, I wasn't under the protection of the U.S. government. <laughs> Gotta make that clear. Right, and, right. and in the background in the studio, while this is going on, Kerry Thornley just happened to be there while it was uh, being recorded. It was run by a guy named Ed Butler, who was the head of a CIA, uh, you know, a sponsored organization called Inca, which is like the Information Council on the Americas or something like that. So Ed Butler sets this up and they interview Oswald to talk about the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and his recent scuffle. And part of the reason that Bringier is kind of like, you know, hey, man, what are you doing passing out this Fair Play for Cuba literature? You bastard! Is because he had earlier been like hanging around with with uh, trying to get close to uh, bring air and I guess some of his associates, and at that point pretending to be an anti, really anti Castro or whatever he was. He was acting like an anti Castro guy before that, and then all of a sudden, yeah, he was doing yeah, this. yeah. So it makes this whole scene very weird. And it was outside of the trademark actually where this happens, the Dallas trademark, which is uh, the Clay Shaw organization the guy that um garrison goes after was after later um and the other you said that there was one other member in the fair play for cuba committee and that guy was just alec heidel or aj heidel which was just oswald's alias so there's yes. really no yeah. it was yeah, just God, oswald yeah. and all he does is get arrested and once he gets arrested he asks for an fbi agent which is not the yeah. first thing a communist would be like, can I talk to the <laughs> You know, if you're really a communist, you probably want to steer clear of them. Well, he wanted to give him a piece of his mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. Listen, you fascist. Um, no, he, but so he, he talks to uh, a, uh, an FBI guy and uh, it's later revealed uh, by another FBI employee that he had some sort of informant file that was, uh, you know, that he found uh, in, connect- in conjunction with this uh, discussion with the FBI agent afterwards. So his, all he does, all this serves to do is discredit the Fair Play for Cuba Committee because he, once it gets revealed that he had defected to the Soviet Union and uh, was a communist, then it's a way that this sort of liberal progressive organization, Fair Play for Cuba, can be exposed to be somehow linked to, to Moscow. And so it discredits him or discredits the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And that's really all it does. He doesn't organize. He doesn't get any meetings together. He just creates a spectacle 
that to his mind, he probably thinks is helping to discredit the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And we know now that the CIA mm -hmm. was illegally doing just that, that they were carrying out operations. David Atlee Phillips of the CIA was part of that. So was the illustrious James McCord. And uh, so that's that seems pretty clearly to be what Oswald was doing um, yeah. it was doing there uh, out of the office of Guy Bannister, uh, who was former FBI, hardcore anti-communist, member of the Minutemen, member of the um, Caribbean oh, yeah. Anti-Communist League, uh, you know, and the guy who mm -hmm. in JFK pistol whips Jack Martin on the night of the assassination saying like, you've been going through my files uh, and so on. Uh, and that's, you know, what oh, starts yeah, the garrison. Wasted. That's a yeah. great scene. Yeah. With, um, is it Walter Matthau that plays, uh, that, that plays him? Yeah, maybe? Yeah, or Ed yeah. Asner. Ed Asner is, uh, is Guy Bannister, I think. Um, I, I will say with, uh, the, the Minutemen connection too, with, with, with the, you know, cause I think people mostly associate the Minutemen maybe with the, uh, with the, our Southern border as opposed to our Southern sea border. Um, but, uh, but actually I believe alpha 66 at one point borrowed a cannon. And now I have no description of this cannon. I, I don't know. If this is an old timey, you know, you light the match, the fuse, or, you know, the ball cannon, or if this is a more modern cannon. But Alpha 66 at one point borrows a cannon from the Minutemen and uh, loads it onto one of their boats. I mean, like we were talking about in the last episode, you know, they were running these raids into Cuba or, you know, on, onto, into Cuban territorial waters uh, to, you know, to fuck with Russian ships, especially during sort of the peace deal times or, you know, in violation of the Neutrality Act. And uh, at one point, you know, they're, they're, they're actually, you know, they're sharing munitions between these two groups. I, I also wanted to bring up that uh, the, the guy Bannister, so the guy Bannister being, being in the Minutemen, this, um, because that 544 Camp Street address, which is yeah. really especially what links uh, Oswald to Bannister is the fact that on one of the Fair Play for Cuba committee leaflets he printed out was his 544 Camp Street address, which is where Guy Bannister was based out of. And not only was Guy Bannister, anti-communist, former FBI agent, who who may well uh, possibly have been running whatever operation it was mm -hmm. that Oswald was doing to uh, discredit the Fair Play for Cuba committee or was involved in some way, you know, hey, have this guy hang out in your office, let him use yeah. your office as a base to, to do this. Uh, but Carlos Brunier was also based out of the 544. The guy that Oswald got into a fight with yeah. and had this debate with on the radio was also based out of that same 544 Camp Street address. So the whole thing just seems like a completely contrived operation from start yeah. to finish. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty much closed loop between uh, between Bannister, Brunier, and, and Oswald. Well, uh, it's like it's important to say that you know it's like on the one hand there is this you know he's this like provocateur who's there to subvert this like image and you know discredit all of these organizations, and at the very same time. But unbeknownst to him, but known to him, I have no idea, is setting the ground and preparing this kind of biography for himself and what will become very important um, of all this like so-called evidence of his activities, uh, you know, for being an assassin and be or being the patsy, you know, uh, for the assassination. So it's sort of like serving this dual purpose. Mm -hmm. Um which I mean, we should we should men we mentioned, but we should talk about this like weird trip to to Mexico too. Um, well, Liz, I told you that in confidence. <laughs> what I did down there is my business, and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you spent too much time at Senior Frogs. That's what you did down there. 
Well, <laughs> what can I say, baby? I, I'm a guy who likes to party. Also, I was waiting for my transit visa to come through. Is that such a fucking crime? <laughs> so yeah, so Oswald, Oswald heads down to Mexico, which uh, for those of you who cannot speak Spanish is Mexico, uh, into a trip that I think is the most like concise amount of like confusing events of all of the confusing parts of Oswald's life. Like Mexico, mm. he's not there for very long, but nothing that happens in Mexico. Well, makes I'm going to put quotation marks around there because yeah, I'm a yeah. no tripper. Yeah, I don't no think tripper? Oswald was, yeah, he was never <laughs> yeah. there. I don't think he was ever there. And um, there is debate about that. But, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I could be persuaded either way. I, I think it's possible that Oswald. So let's lay it out for people. What What is this trip? What was the purpose? What did he allegedly do? What was Oswald doing down there? So he leaves on September 26, 1963, um, reportedly. uh, Gets on a bus for Laredo, Texas. And he um, goes into, gets into Mexico in the early afternoon. uh, And then eventually gets on a bus for Mexico City. uh, Arrives on September 27th. So it's it's kind of of a haul. And he goes to the Cuban embassy, fills out an application for a visa to Cuba. Um, and later he returns with some photographs for a passport, uh, that he's trying to get. And, uh, he's told that the visa could take up to four months and you can't do it without a Russian visa as well. So then he becomes angry and he goes over to the Russian embassy to inquire about a a visa and they tell him to come back the next day, which he does. And he doesn't have much success. Um, they say he does some other things, like he goes to a, a bullfight, and um, then he phones the Russian embassy again. <laughs> and these are places that are going to be heavily surveilled by the uh, CIA. Oh, the CIA, yeah. again, does not have a laid-back attitude about Cuban uh, you know, diplomats and the Cuban state and the, uh, and the, the, Soviet, the Soviet Union, right? I mean, the entire apparatus of this insane national security state is justified on the basis of the mortal threat of the global communist conspiracy, which threatens all of our foreign investments and our precious bodily fluids or our, you know, freedoms and liberties, whichever, whatever you, whatever you think is really going on here. So they never managed to get like a photograph of Oswald coming in and out of these places. There's... Uh, some phone, rec- some recordings of phone calls, and in one of them, um, there's an FBI memo uh, with Hoover talking to someone else about this photo, this uh, phone call, and um, the the phone, the recording of the Hoover conversation was actually erased, but somehow a memo survived that said the voice in the uh, in the in the recording doesn't match Oswald, and the pictures don't match match Oswald either. Don't match him either. So Hoover himself, like LBJ is actually asking him, you know, have you established any more about this visit to the embassy? And he says, no, that's one angle. It's really confusing. Uh, we have up here the tape and the photograph of the man who was at the Soviet embassy using Oswald's name. That picture and the tape do not correspond to this man's voice, nor to his appearance. In other words, it appears that there's a second person who was at the Soviet embassy down there. Yes. <laughs> so that doesn't by itself prove anything, but it's very strange that someone is impersonating you and going around to, you know, Soviet Union and Cuba mm. embassies and that they, you know, they're not able to get it to definitively figure it out. 
And the most um, alarming part of this, which I think really reveals the, uh, I mean, I don't want to say the genius of the plotters, because when you have all the resources in the world and an enormous amount of manpower, and this is what you do for a living, it's like, you know, I don't want to say that they're like the ultimate geniuses, but um, they were good at what they did. Um, but, you know, this is what this part of the plot, what it seems to be, the um, infecting the, uh, the, the entire proceedings with the, a, a virus with the potential to end all life on Earth, which is to say that if it is mm -hmm. determined that Oswald was acting as a Soviet agent, then you can plausibly say that to investigate it would be to, uh, you know, result in the deaths of, you know, tens of millions of people or m maybe everybody. Right. And so in this way you could be covering it up and this is, this appears to be what was the case with Earl Warren. You could be covering it up in order to save people from, um, nuclear annihilation because when he goes to the Soviet embassy, it's reported that he tries to visit, uh, Valerie, I think is his name, Valerie Kostikov, who is, who is considered to be yeah. the, uh, the Western hemisphere KGB person in charge of political assassinations. So this is very incriminating and frightening. And, um, this allows people to have a good excuse to cover it up. And it, it's so compelling, this aspect of it, that uh, I don't, if, if you guys know Vincent Salandria, you've ever heard of him? He's the, one of the first critics, I yeah, think I mentioned yeah, him before, yeah. and he's a Philadelphia lawyer, and he says there's something really suspicious about this whole murder. And he told his brother that if Oswald gets killed you know, in the next couple of days, then you're going to know really where, this came, where these bullets came from, that they came from the very, the very seat of power in the, in the military intelligence establishment. And that's what happens. And then later in life, when both of these guys are like 80 in their 80s and 90s, and Arlen Specter has been knocked out of the Senate, right? The magic bullet guy. And um, Salandria had been one of his biggest critics uh, all along, you know, for decades. And they have lunch together. And um, Salandria gives him a copy of JFK and the Unspeakable, right, as a gift uh, to, to troll him or as a friendly thing. I don't really know. And then they sit down and they have a conversation. And at one point, um, <laughs> at one point, uh, Spectre says, you know, would you, uh, you know, thinking about everything, you know, now, could you at least say I was guilty of incompetence rather than, uh, you know, malfeasance and Salandria kind of, as, as I recall, he sort of vacillates on this and, uh, doesn't, doesn't really give a clear answer. But then later he says something to the effect of like, actually, I think that Spectre basically did the right thing because the, fact that these people were as crazy as they were to sort of play around with the nuclear issue, you know, in order to make sure that their plot would succeed showed that they were crazy enough that it actually could have led to a nuclear war. And yeah. so this aspect of the plot is what, and, and we can get into this more once we talk about how the Warren Commission gets formed, but this, this visit to Mexico City, which may not have even happened, but it had the effect of yeah. almost guaranteeing a, a cover-up in a way that, you know, I mean, what would, I, what would you or I do in that situation? If you're thinking like, okay, you know, Curtis LeMay and Lemnitzer and all of these guys are really, they, they've already been asking President Kennedy, you know, and, and there's a meeting where they say, hey, 
you know, we've been looking at our, at our charts and we've been looking at the big board or whatever, you know, like Dr. Strangelove. And uh, we've calculated that at around the end of 1963, we're going to have such an advantage that we could actually just attack the Soviet Union and nuke them. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd take a little bit of losses, but nothing too severe. And we would wipe out the Soviet Union for good. What do you think, Mr. President? And Kennedy gets up and walks out of the meeting and he uh, turns to Dean Rusk and says, um, you know, and we call ourselves the human race, you know, meaning that um, these these Joint Chiefs guys uh, were, uh, you know, essentially uh, psychopaths, like mass murderers. And um, yeah, that these yeah. were and that these are like the people he's got to, to work for him. And, you know, this contributes, I think, to Kennedy's realization that this, the Cold War itself is this institutionalized structural impediment to, to doing anything to like make the world a better place. And so for all these reasons that he wants to get rid of it or, or in the cold war, I believe they you know are the same reasons that these other people really need the cold war and want the cold war and started it in the first place in a way, because their, their plans for the American century uh, are going to require managing the transition away from colonialism to a sort of neo-colonial world order and if you have this boogeyman of communism, you can justify doing anything in these countries. And, uh, but it also goes along with making this, creating this nuclear doomsday machine uh, that, the, that they use to threaten people or that they even try to persuade the president to just use outright and nuke the Soviet Union. And so this, this Mexico City thing is very heavy, very heavy stuff, and it plays a big role in, in what happens afterwards. Yeah, I just uh, the 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 because maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but there were people who were trying to make it seem as if uh, Oswald had done this, yeah, on behalf of the Soviet Union and yes. Cuba because of this meeting. You know, Aaron, you mentioned that he was writing letters, supposedly writing letters to Valery Kostikov. They had apparently supposedly tried to meet with him in Mexico City, and there were people. Uh, you know, we. Uh, we haven't gotten to the actual assassination yet and the role of the Dallas police department and the 488th military intelligence detachment and all that stuff. But there were people who were leaking to the press that, that that was why Oswald had done it. And yeah. that was one of the narratives that was forming in the public that Oswald had killed JFK on behalf of the communists. And so yeah. this, that, that like you say, Aaron, this, this Mexico city thing clearly was a farce. Even Hoover understood that this was not the case that Oswald had done this, but they were willing to play with this. They were willing to play with this idea and maybe a lot of people would have really wanted that to happen. Like you say, people like LeMay, other people in the, in the national security apparatus, Hey, if, if it, if we ab are able to frame it up that, that, uh, that Oswald did this on behalf of Castro and Khrushchev, you know, so much the better we get to yeah, nuke them. You know, that's what they want. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like I, I, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a win-win. Hey, if it, if it works out, we get to do that. And if it doesn't work, hey, we have this other cover story, the lone, the lone nut cover story ready to go. Uh, which is, you know, uh, like you mentioned, the, the idea that uh, Oswald had done this on behalf of the communists because of this Mexico City trip becomes one of the key factors in why the Warren Commission is created, why this, uh, why, you know, the Katzenbach memo initiates this like lone gunman theory uh, and the the modern cover story that is still the cover story that, uh, that the, the official, uh, you know, the media says and the, and the, the U.S. government still sticks to. Uh, was was really designed, and I say designed, you know, mm -hmm. in opposition to try to avoid this uh, nuclear, this potential nuclear issue. Yeah, and it really folded in a number of the most psychotic, unhinged criminal uh, 
uh, you know, operations and plans within the national security state, like Operation Underworld and those, mof- you know, which, which involves yeah. the relationship between the mafia and the CIA and those Castro assassination plots. Figures from that are involved in the assassination. Operation Northwoods, which was a plan to use a, you know, sort of false flag spectacle to uh, justify an invasion of Cuba. You know, it's been speculated that... Or, you know, it, it's been hypothesized that some of those anti-Castro Cuban elements with, that were used in the assassination were, um, you know, ha- had been working with Mongoose and prior to that, the Bay of Pigs. And then had, you know, for the Northwoods operations and the planning for that, they would have been involved in that and they would have been really hoping for a Cuban invasion. So you get some people who might not even be on the same page at all, or they could have been opportunistic, but those people connected to Frank Sturgis, who the day of the assassination are right there leaking things to the press about Oswald's uh, Cuban Cuban connections. And then hanging over all of that is the nuclear aspirations of the uh, military brass who really just wanted to wipe the Soviet Union off, off the map. And even if the wiser heads were going to prevail, you know, these people who are kind of above all of that, like people like I think Alan Dulles and Dean Acheson, they, on some level, probably recognize that these guys are, are crazy. Um, you know, like, um, I think it was Henry Kissinger, who's kind of of that ilk and, and mentality, said that military men are dumb, stupid animals to be used as tools in diplomacy. And so I think that you're people who are more detached and patrician, like a, a Richard Helms and a, a Dulles and a Dean Acheson, that these people would, would, they're not afraid to utilize the threat of nuclear war to get that, but that ultimately they, they could overrule the, the military people, or at least they banked on it. And we're lucky, I guess that it worked out that way, but it wasn't preordained that it would have, but they'll take that chance because, you know, for them, the prize is like ruling the world. So if there's a 10% chance that they might've killed everybody, but your the outcome is you become the richest, most powerful people and maintain that position on top of uh, human civilization you know, they'll go ahead and roll the dice that way in, in ways that we might be uncomfortable with since we, uh, we don't get the perks, but we would get, we would get incinerated if it, if it went, if it went badly. Well, I think we got to wrap up kind of soon. So let's get, uh, let's get Dallas, uh, excuse me, let's get, uh, let's get Oswald here back to, back to America. So, uh, or I mean, let's get Oswald's double off the job. rather. <laughs> so, Oswald does resurface uh, in Dallas. I believe his family, you know, is they're they're, they're living there. Um, you know, I, I'm still with the Paynes. I think his his wife is living with her, and and uh, Ruth Payne, like uh, like was mentioned earlier, gets Oswald a job at the Texas Book Depository. Now, along the same around the same time, Oswald buys one of the finest pieces of weaponry ever crafted in the history of mankind. The Italian the, stallion. Oh, oh my God. God. I mean, the thing, this was, believe me, if the atom bomb hadn't been invented, we would have had a cold war with Carcano rifles pointed at the other side. This thing is so powerful and just such a, such a, a great shot. So he purchases a Carcano rifle, uh, I believe under the name of AJ Hidel, right? I think he yeah. uses that is this his little pseudonym there to buy the rifle, which is ridiculous because by the way, Oswald, if this is Texas in the early sixties, Oswald could have walked into any gun shop of oh, which yeah. there were many and purchased a shitty sporting rifle, 
without giving any kind of absolutely name you know like and eh, but he but he chooses to do it uh to do it mail order which is uh of course a little nod to our to Jeff Bezos because he saw that the bug men would come and eventually be the same thing. Um, you know, it's a little, Oswald was the first of the bug men, they say. So, he, you know, he buys this rifle and, uh, and, uh, and Oswald, whether it's Lee Harvey Oswald or one of his, um, shadow friends has seen at a gun range. Uh, he's shooting onto a, uh, a, a, well, a guy next to him's target, which by the way, yeah, somebody who goes to gun raises sometime, totally fine to do if you're a better shot than them. In fact, most people will just like give you a high five and be like, damn, that's great shooting. Um, especially if you hit the bullseye. And the guy is like, hey, what the fuck? Like, you're shooting on my target. I paid like a cent for that because it's fucking 1962. Um <laughs> and uh and and Lee or maybe Lee's body double, we're not again, we're not sure on this, says, Oh, sorry, I thought it was that bastard Kennedy. Um, this scene is also uh shown what a in weird- a the stone video. I do that constantly. I'm always at the range. Like, sorry. Sorry. I thought that was Joe Biden. Uh, I say that very loudly so that the person knows that I want to kill the president with the gun. We, you, I am going to kill Joe Biden. Uh-oh. Going to shoot him with my gun. I'm not. I'm just joking. Yeah, can we just clip that, that and clear. say that? I do in not the want to do that. I'm just saying what a modern version of that would be uh and you know so so this you know it's very ostentatiously like oh, yeah, i want to fuck kill the president to this to this stranger um and uh yeah and you know he's uh he at one point gets his hands on a revolver too uh which is uh which is later used to well not sure it's the same revolver but a revolver is later used to kill the policeman jd tippett's uh, and yeah, I mean, by all accounts, he's, you know, he's just working the Texas Book Depository down there on Dealey Plaza. Bam, he works there for about ten more years. Um, <laughs> later, gets a job uh, at the at the actual distributors company. He and Marina move to, to down to New Orleans. And he starts a little coffee business. Yeah, um, lovely middle class story. That's it, you know. And uh, and you know, gave birth to me. So I'd like to thank this <laughs> podcast about my. Um, yeah. Uh, so what happens next? Well, he's in, he's, in, he's in the Texas School Book Depository. As you say, Ruth Payne gives him that job. And uh, he actually had an uh, offer from a tech, like the Dallas Employment Commission or something for a job that would have paid more and uh, not sucked as much, as I, if I remember correctly. And uh, Ruth Payne neglects to give him that, give him that, um, that information. And so he starts there at the Texas School Book uh, Depository, which is owned by our guy, Dryhole, um, uh, Dryhole Bird. I was going to say Dryhole Belden again, but mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry. Which, by the uh, way, sorry. it has already made its way to Wikipedia, like I said. Yeah, that, that did, that, someone did put that on my Wikipedia page as, as a nickname, which I'll tell you. We just need a secondary source. If you are a journalist out there, write a three-word article, braces Dryhole Belden, or futz forwards technically, but that will sounding. let it have a citation. Yeah, so he, so he gets this job, and... Um, Oh, the, the other thing I wanted to mention about this as a, as a prelude, because we did, we did just talk about Mexico City. So the, the, the best piece of evidence, or I say best in quotation marks, uh, about his Mexico City discussion with Kostikov. So Ruth Payne helps to get in this job in the, in the depository, Texas book, School Book Depository. And she also produces a typed letter to, about, to Kostikov from Oswald. It wasn't signed, though. So, and this is uh, like months after... You know, the Warren Commission's been going on for a while, mm-hmm. and then she produces this this letter 
uh, unsigned, which is, you know, really something. So she helps Oswald by uh, getting him this job right over a very slow curve on the, uh, w- the presidential motorcade route on uh, November 22nd. And then later she incriminates him with, uh, you know, something that potentially suggests he was attempting to do some very crazy things. So even if you think he's not working for the Soviets, which is what they go with, his erratic behavior and things that don't make any sense can later be used just to say, oh, you know, who could explain any of the things he does? It's just, mm-hmm. you can't explain what people Bay's do sometimes. Too. And, and this becomes the, like, this becomes the, the story of like, oh, you know, you guys and your conspiracies, you just don't expect that. You just don't want to acknowledge that life is random and random wacky things happen all the time. And you probably need some mm-hmm. uh, psychotropic medication, uh, you know, or, or whatever. Like, but like, this is, you know. Have you tried Lexapro? <laughs> <laughs> so he, that's, that's how he gets into position on, on November 22nd. It's thanks to Ruth Payne. And it's a, he, he finds himself in a very bad place. Yeah, and that, that's 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 where we're going to have to wrap up for today. Um, next week, you will hear, did Lee Harvey Oswald shoot Kennedy? Did anybody shoot Kennedy? Um, the answers to both of those are technically different, um, but you will find them out. I want to mention, too, that there is, and you know, we actually talked about this before we started recording, which is probably why we forgot to mention while we were recording. Uh, the leader of Alpha 66, uh, group I, one of the groups I mentioned before, which was one of many... Cuban, um, you know, exile groups operating in the U.S. with CIA support. Uh, a guy named Anthony uh, Vesiana. He does claim, although we can mention, we can mention that there's some there's some who dispute this. That uh, that at some point in in September, and there are a few days when when uh, Lee is in New Orleans, that they don't know where Lee is. Like nobody can really figure out where he is. I think it's from September sixth through ninth. Uh, Vesiana does say that uh, that he he sees. Maurice Bishop, his CIA handler, who's later said to be David Atlee Phillips, talking to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in the um, uh, what do you call it? In the lobby of a of a building where where Vesiana is supposed to meet him in Dallas. Um, so, uh, Aaron, you were saying that that's now. Um, so some some are disputing that, but that was sort of one of the main like kind of connections. It's really, it's really heavily harped on in the Gate and Fonzie, uh, one of the House Select Committee assassination researchers, his book on it, but uh, on, on the assassination. But, uh, but apparently there's some disputing this fact. It, it, the dispute, as I understand it, and this comes from John Newman, okay, and he's one of these, he, he's written a great book on Oswald and the CIA, and then he wrote the book on Kennedy in Vietnam. So he's gone through a whole lot of documents on this subject, and he's actually a professor uh, at James Madison University, and I only know this from his Facebook posts, but he he said he suggests that that uh, that Vesiana was not really working for the CIA; he was working for military intelligence, and that it, there was something about the story that was there to just as um, Fonzie was misled by people like Marita Lorenz and people like Claire Booth Luce. Mm-hmm. I, I believe what Newman is arguing is that somehow. Um, that story was there to also derail things and attract people to David Atlee Phillips. And uh, for what it's worth, Peter Dale Scott also believes that Phillips and E. Howard Hunt were guys who were often put out there as a a sort of attractors uh, in in a way for attention and so on about this case that may not, whose, whose bigger, more important roles may have actually been that in terms of the assassination. So, 
I, when I started looking at what uh, John was talking about, and I think he's given a presentation on it, but I haven't gone back to her. It kind of made my brain hurt because it's really, it's really detailed. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I've got all these other things to worry about right now. I can't go back and look at it. Because I am, yeah, as, yeah, much as, yeah, I, yeah. as much as I find the case fascinating, I'm not a JFK guy per se, but I've studied it a ton as, to see how it fits into the big picture of the evolution of the U.S. empire and the deep political system in the deep state. And so I, I, I really am fascinated by the case for that reason, but it mainly because it illuminates so much more about covert operations before and after and up to the present day and the way that this system is actually structured. And so in that way, I think, it, you know, you might be, your listeners may be more interested to hear, to sort of understand those things rather than going into all the details of the Kennedy assassination, which are very, very arcane, fascinating, but extremely arcane. Yes. And so... I am agnostic about the David Atlee Phillips, Maurice Bishop thing, but John Newman is very smart and uh, put a lot of time into it. And so I couldn't just poo poo it, uh, what he's come up with. So I'll just leave that as a, as a caveat there. Oh, wait, before we stop, let's give those listeners a little bit of a bibliography that they can check out some, uh, some, some books they might like. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to do that because uh, I, I don't want to come on here and at all, uh, try to give, try to seem like I'm giving the impression of like, well, I've done some looking into this and here's what I found. Thanks to my, you know, tireless efforts. Like I really have, uh, look, learned from people who've spent a huge amount of time on this. And, uh, there's a, there's a lot of people in the older generations of, of researchers in this area that I could go into, but I'm, I'm going to talk about two people today that, uh, I think are, are very important. And there's a lot of others I could mention, but especially these two, uh, in terms of the sort of deep political system and the uh, implications of the, the growth of the national security state and its connections with the underworld of organized crime, Peter Dale Scott is uh, really peerless in this area as a, as a theorist of, of events like this and what they uh, can point to in terms of uh, allowing us to understand how our nominally democratic system uh, all too often functions in a top-down fashion and uh, that, that crimes can go unpunished, huge crimes like this, um, like the Kennedy assassination. And so Peter Dale Scott's Road to, Road to 9-11 as it deals with 9-11, but it also covers a lot of the history leading up to that point. But his earlier work on yeah. uh, deep politics and, J and the death of JFK is, was published in like 1993 by University of California Press. And it's a challenging read, but if you've already done some preliminary reading on the case, I'd really recommend that. And the other, uh, the person who is just the human encyclopedia of the Kennedy case, but not in such a way that he uh, is just sort of monomaniacal about Dallas, you know, he connects it to the larger foreign policy issues, is uh, Jim Diagenio, uh, who has a website, Kennedy's mm -hmm. and King, and he also has the book Destiny Betrayed, and really another good. book called JFK, The State of the Evidence Today, which is like a a rebuttal of the terrible Vincent Bugliosi book, but that serves, even if you haven't read the Bugliosi book, which no one has, uh, it's still a great book in its own right. Uh, and the way that he takes Bugliosi apart is, is wonderful. He's also the writer for Oliver Stone's uh, upcoming documentary, which is already finished. They're just going to premiere it at Cannes in, uh, in this, this summer. And uh, it's four parts. And uh, I've had the privilege of working with both of these men. I wrote an article recently with Peter Dale Scott, and I'm working on a book of his un some unpublished essay essays, and perhaps another book of like a Peter Dale Scott reader with some of his classic essays. And I'm going to actually try to talk to him before next week's episode, 
about Jack Ruby because nobody knows him better than uh, nobody knows the Jack Ruby angle better than uh, Peter Dale Scott. And I've also had the privilege of working with Jim DiEugenio on, uh, I published that Adam Curtis review and I'm going to do more on that this weekend, I hope for a part two. And I met Jim in person in January uh, when I was interviewed for Destiny Betrayed uh, at Oliver Stone's offices, where I also met the great Lisa Pease, who's a real RFK assassination expert. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Diogenio and Peter Dale Scott are, they agree on like 95% of uh, what they, their take on these things, I would say, but they are, they're sort of rivals in a particular way over some things that they disagree with about Garrison. But uh, I, uh, don't really necessarily <laughs> want to provoke them about it because I really think they're both such wonderful guys and uh, they're both so brilliant and, and as about as different as two guys can be. Uh, but really their work is, is fantastic. And if you really want to deep dive into this, there's a 35 part series with Jim Diogenio and he's yeah. also uh, on Kennedy's and King, which is covers so much. And also um, he does things on black op radio all the time. And I'm going to eventually go on there, but I've listened to him on that for years. And he's always really uh, brilliant in that way. Uh, when he, when he gets into the details here, he's, I guess you'd have to say he's kind of obsessed, obsessive about this stuff, but it's, he, he really is uh, an amazing. A lot of Kennedy worm. guys. It seems like, oh yeah. 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 So I would really recommend if, if your readers are wanting to know where I'm getting most of this stuff, those two guys, you know, in addition to like David Talbot and, and a number of other people, uh, those those two gentlemen are uh, kind of national treasures if you uh, care about this uh, case and the historical uh, importance of it all. I would just add, if you want to hear Dave Emery say milieu a yes. lot, um, they, uh, D- Jim DiEugenio and Dave Emery recorded a 25-part series on, uh, on JFK, uh, which is, I think you can get on Dave Emery's site, Spitfire List, uh, which I, I loved. And it basically just yeah. overviews the, the entire Destiny Betrayed uh, so if you've read the book, you'll you'll get a lot out of it. If you haven't read the book, you'll also get a lot out of it. Uh, I really liked that that interview series he did. I would definitely second. I yeah, I, I really like Dave Emery. Um, Kennedy yeah, and King, he's a very cool guy. He, he rocks. Uh, yeah. Kennedyandking.com too is is is. I I think that's the actual just URL. Kennedyandking.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, really fantastic resource. Spartacus Educational is really good too for like kind of a Wikipedia type like resource and not too, too granular detailed, but you know, kind of just a who is who sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean like everybody fucking JFK and unspeakable, really, really good book that kind of goes into a lot of the detail on this, a lot of Catholic stuff in there too. Um, for those of you who are so inclined, uh, and, uh, you know, like they mentioned David Talbot and, uh, and I, I, I really, like, like I, I mentioned too, I like Gaten Fonzie's book quite a lot too. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, strap in because we are going to Dealey. <laughs> All right, so Liz, you know how sometimes I take off my shirt and you get pissed at me? Like right now? Check out what I'm about to do. Dude, no, put your pants on, Brace. I'm, I'm all right. This, wait, why are you t- wait, why are you taking your pants off? Why I'm, are you taking your pants I'm off? Totally naked now. It's so hot in here. It's so hot in here. I, the fan isn't good. Uh, I'll be real with you. I'm naked right now. And that's the end of the episode. Uh my wait, name, you wear underwear though, right? I took those off too. 
You want me to show you? I can't. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> they're little legs. They're not fucking little. They're well, they're just like, they're thin legs. Oh my- no, listen. All right, take a fucking take a screenshot. I already took a screenshot. Not taking. Oh, my feet are dirty because I've been walking yeah. around on them all day like a little hobbit. What are you, a hippie? Uh, baby, what, do I look? Check that. I could. No, I'm not. Gonna oh do my that. god, I'm not gonna say that. What has Ellie done to you? I'm just. I'm fucking, dude. I'm in Ojai right now. I'm in Ojai right now. I am in Esalen right this second. All right, I'm going to the tubs, baby. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. I'm connected in, uh, to Young Chomsky, who is the producer. The podcast is called True Anon. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I am naked. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.